6: The sound of Kumbaya often heard in church or around the campfire, perhaps. The song was popularised by singers like Peter, Paul and Mary and Joan Baez. But what does Kumbaya actually mean and where does the song come from? Now, descendants of West African slaves who came to the US state of Georgia have successfully traced it to their predecessors, the Gullah Geechee. It's also been recognised by the state legislature as a historical song. Dr. Griffin Lotson is a Gullah historian who started the research. He spoke to the BBC's Carney Sharp.
7: We are very excited about it because it opens a door. It's kind of like a tourist or a place for history where people often wondered where it got started. For us, knowing that that song came from a people that's called Gullah Geechee. We're the only culture in America that has its birth out of something called slavery. Slavery was not a good thing, but culture was created from that and survived up until now, in the 21st century.
8: So what does Kumbaya actually mean?
7: It got famous and I traveled the world and I take a microphone and ask everybody about that. So I know it's over a billion people know it all over the world and their stories are similar, but really it wasn't Kumbaya. Famous people started singing it and of course everybody bought the albums and things. And then just before that, in America... At first, it was come by here, religious, very religious song. Come by here, my lord, come by here. But very few people know that the original words was come by ya. In my language, I would say come ya, boy, or, come ya, telling you to come to me in proper grammar for English language say, will you please come here? We would say come ya.
9: Come by ya.
7: We took some English and then our African words, and we kind of made up our own English, if you can say that. So that's how it was derived, kind of a two language uh, came from the enslaved trying to learn the American language. So
8: was this a religious song then?
7: In the beginning, it was a solid religious song on the plantations. We learned some of the religion of our newfound country. We came here by force, so we had to learn to survive. We kind of liked that Jesus thing, you know. As they talk about freedom and when we die, we're going to heaven. We still kept some of our Gullah Geechee ways. We made our own songs. They call it composing now. So they sung it from plantation to plantation. Mm. This song it never got famous until the late 1800s or early 1900s, as far as we know. 1926 for sure, because it was recorded—the first known recording in the world. So it was purely religious.
10: Come by ya, somebody you, Lord. Come by ya,
7: Lord. Come by ya, come my Lord. Come by ya, oh Lord, come by ya. That's the original words, and it's changed through the years. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it changed through the years to kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord.
8: Come So you approached the Library Congress and they had the first recording of Kumbaya, as we say it. Uh, Tell us more about this recording. What was it like to hear it for the first time, I suppose, in its purer form?
7: Well, it was quite unique. I went in this house, which was a former slave house, and I shut the door in the bedroom. I put my earphones on and the hairs just stood up on my arm and head because I heard the Gullah. I am Gullah. I am Geechee. And I said, he said, "Come by ya." There was no come by here. There was no kumbaya. In the Library of Congress, I had it in a box somewhere for nearly a hundred years, and nobody knew what he was saying. And I said, he said his name, Henry Wiley from Darien, Georgia, April 17, 1926. I started researching and going deep in the rabbit hole. So from 2012 until now, that's been a great part of my life, researching and showing
11: proof.
6: Dr. Griffin Lotson talking to Carney Sharp.
11: Well, Haiti is on the list of what's supposed to be. Haiti, the people who are called Haitians, predominantly are people who are classified as non-white, who they're not supposed to ever have anything under the system of white supremacy, except punishment. Or being arrogant enough under Tucson to think that you, with your military skills, can take us over or tell us what to do. So many a a historian has said that the reason Haiti is in the shape that it's in now and sort of like the head wagon. People of the world, you might say, mm-hmm. everybody kind of looks on them with great pity. It's because the white supremacists made that decision.
12: I'm Marco Werman, and you're with the world. World, 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 world. 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 We've all been practically numbed by the wave of sexual scandal since Weinstein, but this new one is hard to get your head around. It involves a humanitarian aid group. These are organizations that are supposed to help people in the most dire need, and actually might have ended up doing them harm. In the last few days, the aid group Oxfam has been hit by such allegations. Officials from Oxfam are accused of prostituting survivors of humanitarian disasters in Haiti and in Chad and possibly elsewhere. The problem with sexual abuse in the humanitarian aid community is bigger than just one organization, but there are people actively working to prevent it.
13: Let's sit down. Let's find ways to stop putting the responsibility on women for their own safety. We know that there are survivors out there, and we know that the best systems and policies are the ones that are guided by and designed by survivors.
12: That's veteran aid worker Heidi Lehman. She'll be featured in an upcoming series on the world that looks at sexual harassment and abuse in the humanitarian aid sector. Amy Costello, senior correspondent and investigations editor at the nonprofit Quarterly, is a reporter on the series. I asked Amy about the charges at the root of the Oxfam scandal.
2: We all remember the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. The allegations are that Oxfam's country director for Haiti uh, used prostitutes at a villa that had been rented for him by Oxfam in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake. There are also reports that this country director and another man had both worked in Chad prior to going to Haiti And that when they were in Chad, there were similar concerns raised um, about their behavior there. And yet, even after that, they were given these senior roles in Haiti. There are also allegations that underage girls may have been involved in this incident in Haiti. But Oxfam says those allegations about the age of the girls or women are unproven.
12: So the spotlight right now is on Oxfam, but how unique are they in the world of humanitarian NGOs when it comes to this?
2: Well, I think we're about to find out. Even just today, the aid group Doctors Without Borders announced that it had acted on 24 cases of harassment or sexual abuse in the last year. And I think we may hear similar organizations coming forward with what they know about sexual abuse and harassment in their organizations. But Marco, I just think it's important to point out that this is indeed an issue that has been going on in the humanitarian sector for decades. Ever since the UN sent peacekeepers to Cambodia in the 90s, there have been allegations of sexual abuse among UN peacekeepers. I've reported on some of that for your own program in the Mm. past decade or so. In West Africa in 2002, there was widespread sexual abuse of children by relief workers. They were in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, and they were asked to give sexual favors in return for things like school fees. And then even just in November of last year, the U.N. reported 31 new allegations of sexual abuse and exploitation against peacekeepers and civilians working for U.N. agencies in just a three-month period.
12: It's pretty extraordinary. Why, though? I mean, these are organizations that are supposed to help people, not to harm people.
2: Something that we've been learning in light of the Me Too movement is that sexual abuse and harassment is often about power differentials. And if you want to find one sector in the world that has some of the grossest kind of power imbalances, it would have to be humanitarian aid. You have aid workers going into places that are in crisis, where there is oftentimes not enough food, not enough water, inadequate shelter. And you have populations that are desperate and not empowered. And so we have an environment that is simply ripe for sexual abuse and exploitation. It's also, I think, very important to say, however, (laughs) that the vast majority of aid workers out there are likely doing very important work, uh, not exploiting local populations. But it is indeed a sector that is ripe for this kind of exploitation to occur. And when you think about reporting, you know, who's going to report?
12: And we've got to remember, too, that many of these aid groups are doing really important work, and often a a lot of that work is done by women, often women of color from developing countries. So what could be the consequences for them if budgets for humanitarian groups start getting slashed?
2: It's a very important point to remember about who is doing aid work across the globe. And the allegations about Oxfam involve so-called expat or international staff. But the fact of the matter is the majority of people doing important work across the globe are people of color from developing nations, as you say, many of them women, taking risks and uh, to be in places that are unsafe, delivering vital, life-saving care. And so I do think it's important to remember that as we begin to critique the sector, as we rightfully should. How these allegations will impact the bottom line of these organizations, what it means for their staff who are indeed doing good work around the world, and what that means for you know humanitarian settings going forward.
12: Amy, this is very much on your mind because you're working on a series for the world on sexual harassment and abuse and humanitarian aid work. What are the kinds of stories that you're looking at?
2: You know, it's kind of a very in-depth analysis of the inherent problems that exist in the sector that prevent aid workers from feeling safe doing their work and what can be done to make them feel more safe. It has a lot to do with what we're talking about today.
12: And for our series, you've actually already spoken with a veteran aid worker, Heidi Lehman. Uh, She's uh, also a consultant who focuses on ending violence against women and girls, especially in these humanitarian settings. I'd like us to hear what she had to tell you about what she sees as the way forward.
13: Let's get survivors around the table feeding into these systems. Let's have a frank discussion about risk management. I think that there should be much more attention to this. I think that attention has to turn into action. I think the heads of organizations need to take this on 110%.
12: So Amy Costello, Heidi, was saying the heads of organizations need to take this on 110%. Fair enough. But will the women who often don't have a voice... Will they be up for this?
2: I think ever since the Harvey Weinstein story broke, we have an answer to that, which is that indeed women are becoming more emboldened than ever to come forward and speak truthfully about their experiences in sectors across the globe. And I don't think the humanitarian aid sector will be any different.
12: Amy Costello, senior correspondent and investigations editor at the Nonprofit Quarterly, thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me, Marco.
12: Amy has already heard from a number of aid workers about their experiences with sexual harassment and abuse, and she would like to hear from more of you. You can call us at 857-285-4157 and leave a confidential message. Amy will be personally checking the inbox for your comments. Again, that number, 857-285-4157. If you missed that, the number is also on our website, pri.org slash women's lives and thanks. Oxfam is based in the United Kingdom, so what kind of impact is this emerging scandal having in Britain? The world's Leo Hornack joins us from our studio at the BBC in London. What is the impact, Leo?
6: It's huge, Marco. I mean, to give you a bit of a sense, this story has pushed the Olympics off the front pages for the past four days. Wow. Um, and, and that's because Oxfam is more than just any other charity in Britain. I mean, it's one of the largest charities in this country. If you walk down any high street in any town in Britain, there'll be a charity shop and the chances are that charity shop will be an Oxfam shop. There's one that's just 20 yards away from where I live. So it kind of goes to the heart of what people think about charities and the trust that they put into charities. And there is a sense that I think a backlash has already begun. You've had celebrity disendorsements, the the British film star, Minnie Driver. She was um, a kind of celebrity ambassador for Oxfam, has been for 20 years. She's formally disassociated herself. And Oxfam themselves have said that they've had 1,200 people cancel their recurring donations over the weekend, and that's, that's twice as many as they'd usually expect in that period. So, yeah, this is a big deal in this country. Yeah, you mentioned those charity shops uh, on
12: the main streets throughout England. I mean, those secondhand stores are basically the Salvation Army of the UK. Uh, Oxfam just has a really high trust factor. What is Oxfam saying in response to
6: this scandal? Well, I mean, as always with this kind of scandal, um, it's the scandal itself and then the perception of a cover-up. And both of those can be equally toxic to, to an organization's public image. So on the one hand, we know much more now about what happened in Haiti, but it's also emerging that Oxfam feels it didn't fulfill its obligations after the fact. Mm. So the deputy chief executive of Oxfam, uh, Penny Lawrence, she stepped down. She said she was ashamed of the way that that scandal was handled. She said she took full responsibility. And as I think you've heard already on today's programme, There's a wider sense that this was not necessarily an isolated incident or isolated to Oxfam. So there's been talk of this being just the tip of the iceberg in terms of abusive behavior happening in the international aid industry.
12: Now, the British government is a major source of funding for Oxfam, not to mention other international charities.
6: What are they saying? Well that's gonna be the the biggest practical impact probably in the short term. I mean Oxfam gets forty-three percent of its funding from public authorities and the government. So in terms of what Oxfam is, in a very real sense, Oxfam exists because of the British taxpayer. And this is where the government has really pushed things. The minister concerned, she's called Penny Morden, she has said she's concerned at the fact that Oxfam was lacking moral leadership. And she's made an explicit threat to withdraw funding or reduce government funding from Oxfam if they fail to get their story basically straight. But more importantly than that, we're already beginning to see this widening out to other charities that are funded by the government. So the same minister is writing officially to every single charity that receives taxpayers' money to ask them if there were any safeguarding issues that they should be made aware of. In other words, putting them on notice that if they have skeletons in the, in the closet at this stage, this is the time to be clear and to make a clean breast of this because if they don't, then there is not just a scandal, there's a scandal about a cover-up after that. The world's Leo Hornack in London. Thanks very much. Thanks, Marco. Choose my
14: when I'm in France. am just saying
12: when Emmanuel Macron was elected president of France last May, his victory was a clear rejection of the extreme right and its candidate Marine Le Pen. As a relative newcomer, Macron was also seen as a breath of fresh air in French politics, and when his party went on to win a majority in parliament, it brought more political newbies to power. And yet, when it comes to talking about race, Activists say they're up against the same old historic French problems with Macron's government. Rocaya Diallo is a French journalist and filmmaker. Her parents are from Senegal in the Gambia. She describes herself as an activist fighting for racial, gender, and religious equality. And last year, she came very close to being an advisor to Macron's government. So, Rokia, thanks for being here. You were appointed to a digital advisory panel, which was supposed to help the current administration of Macron develop policy on a more inclusive digital future. But then in December, that fell apart. Can you tell us what happened?
15: Sure. Thank you for inviting me. Actually, I was appointed, but from the point when my appointment was made public, some people started to protest over Twitter and the internet to say that my opinions uh, against racism, especially tackling state-sponsored racism, were not acceptable. So the government actually decided to evict me from the council because they didn't want to have protests um, against my positions on the space that is allowed for Muslims and also what I was saying about how the French states can produce racism.
12: Yeah. What had you said on Twitter? Uh, briefly tell us that, that so offended people.
15: It was not only on Twitter, it was my interviews, the books I've written. I've said basically that there was police brutality in France and you have identity checked in the streets, you know, every day. And if you are black or Arab, you are 20 times more likely to be checked than if you belong to any other categories. And the other thing is that I am a supporter of women uh, who wear the hijab, meaning that I don't support them wearing the hijab, but I support their choice. So uh, uh, my opinion is that every woman should do whatever she wants to do with her body, including wearing wearing a hijab. And that opinion uh, was something negative, according to the people who protested uh, against the fact that I was appointed on this board.
12: So you were pushed out of that panel. What does it say to you about the French government and French society that you were pushed out and that most of the 30 member panel had your back?
15: Actually, yes. So I was, so the minister in charge of digital asked to the head of the council to remove me and she did not accept. She resigned and uh, almost everyone in the board resigned in support of what she decided. The thing to me, it says that, uh, you said in your introduction that thanks to Emmanuel Macron, many people of color and young people were elected in the Congress. But that means to me that even if you have more popular uh, people of color in the Congress, they are still not allowed to say whatever they want to do about race. So you're okay to be there as long as you don't, you know, you're not too vocal on race issues. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was not allowed to say everything I wanted to say on race because it's still a taboo in France.
12: Explain that to us because I don't even quite understand what, what it means that the French government forbids talking about race.
15: I think that France still sees itself as a white country. So we're not really used to speak about race. And it's not an issue that people are really comfortable talking about, because they tend to think that we are all French, either you're French or you're not. And among French people, they try not to make difference. But I'm constantly being asked where I'm from. How come I speak such a good French? And trying to say that openly is like, Oh no, you're bringing a, an issue that doesn't belong to France. It's, you know, racism is in the US. It's elsewhere. But here in France, we are so universal. There, there, there are no such issues.
12: So, Rocaya, you made a documentary about French and American anti-racism activism, literally translating from the French. Uh, the, the doc was called From Paris to Ferguson, Guilty of Being Black, though in English it's titled Not Your Mama's Movement. Uh, what are a couple of things that activists in France and the U.S. can learn from each other?
15: Uh, the thing I, I, I really think that France could learn from the U.S. is the way U.S. has handle a way of speaking about race. You know, you have vocabulary, you have words, you have departments in university that are dedicated to race. That's something that doesn't exist in France. But on the other side, I think that in France, we have a way of mixing together that doesn't exist to me in the U.S., I see that groups, um,
12: people of color mixing with, you know, yes, white people? French. Yeah,
15: white people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something very common in France that I don't see that much in the U.S. and I have the feeling that there is much more segregation, spatial segregation, but also in friendships, in couples. You know, people seem separated to me. So that's something that seems uh, much easier in France and maybe something that the Americans could learn from France
12: I want to end with a story that's in the news that's related to all of this, and that is Menel Ibtissem, a young woman who was a huge success on the French edition of the TV show The Voice. Uh, She sang Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen in French and Arabic, got almost a million hits on YouTube. But she quit the show because there was so much public outrage about a tweet she had posted some time ago suggesting we don't know all the facts about the truck attack in Nice in July of 2016, and maybe the French government, she suggested, might be silent on more details about it. So she's now off the show. Is this an example of intolerance for free speech, or did she go too far?
15: The thing is that Menel wears a headscarf she's muslim and the first thing that outraged people was the fact that she was visibly muslim. So they started to search on her social media because of how she looked. And the posts that she made were not on Twitter but on her private Facebook. I don't say that it's it makes them good but it's not the same thing when you you, you speak to your private community you don't say the same things as when you speak publicly and i think that many young french people uh, believe in conspiracy theories it's something that is uh, to me that needs to be addressed but she's not the only one so i think that yeah she's been a victim of islamophobia because if she wasn't uh, visibly muslim nobody would have even had the idea of searching into her facebook profile
12: Rokhaya Diallo a french journalist filmmaker and activist thanks very much for being with us it's great to meet you thank
15: you thank you it was a pleasure
12: I'm Marco Werman, and you're with the world. Marvel's new superhero movie, Black Panther, had its premiere yesterday, not on Hollywood Boulevard, but in Kisimu, the third largest city in Kenya, and the hometown of Lupita Nyong'o, one of the stars of the film. BuzzFeed's Tamara Griffin was there. So what a treat. You got a sneak preview in Kisumu, while we have to wait until Friday. Uh, so for those of us who couldn't be there in Kisimu, take us there. What, what was the scene like?
16: It was Hollywood red carpet meets... African elegance, honestly. Um, Before you even entered the theater, there was a a dance troupe that was performing a lot of traditional dances to traditional music. So that set the tone right off the bat. And then as you walk past the dancers, you had more of a traditional red carpet, um, a big movie poster. And it's funny because Lupita Nyong'o being from Kisumu, um, a lot of the the marketing and the the movie posters that you'd see around town didn't feature any of the other cast members. No Chadwick Boseman, no Michael B. Jordan. It would just be Lupita. <laughs> so <laughs> someone, who, someone who knew nothing about Black Panther may be inclined to think that she was, I mean, I know she's one of the stars. They'd be inclined to think that she was maybe the only star in the movie. She's the Panther. <laughs> <laughs> right, she is the Panther, the only Panther that matters. Um, And so attendants would then walk past these gigantic movie posters. There was a lot of local media and some international media like myself who were there. um, And so they would have an opportunity to pause and take photos. There was a dress code with certain colors that that people wanted attendants to wear, um, colors that you see a lot in the movie, golds and black, purple, Mm. green, red, really strong colors. So everyone looked really, really nice. People of all ages were at this premiere, too, by the way. It is um, so cool
12: that people were, were up for this big moment in Kissimmee. But despite the oversized presence of Lupita Nyong'o in all the publicity, she herself was not there. Were people disappointed?
16: People were definitely bummed. Um, I don't think I talked to anyone who did not express their disappointment at that. And we actually didn't know for sure whether or not she was going to be there until the day of the premiere. Some local reports um, had pointed to... A mysterious Facebook status that I was never able to locate in which Lupita said she would be in Kisumu. Um, And, you know, of course, on social media, it's hard to tell what's what with with rumors like that. So it wasn't until the morning of the premiere, actually, that we found out for sure from Kisumu County government that she was not going to be there.
12: Talk a bit about Mm -hmm. Lupita Nyong'o and her family and their importance in Kisumu because her father is like the regional governor, right?
16: Yeah, he's the governor of the county of Kisumu. And actually, even before that, their family has had a pretty prominent place in the community. I was actually surprised to hear that in addition to his political position in the county, Anyang Nyong'o, who people locally actually call Professor Nyong'o, is also a patron of the arts himself. Um, I learned that he, before becoming governor and entering the political space, had produced and acted in plays on his own. Um, oh. And so, in oh. a yeah, and so now, now that he's governor, he's in this really interesting position um, in which he's he's been pushing a lot of uh, policy around arts and entertainment, cultivating that sort of community in Kisumu.
12: Right. So, it's the um, Black Panther screening, kind of part of that strategy of his.
16: Absolutely. So I think apart from the obvious, you know, his connection to the film Via Lupita, he saw it as an opportunity to shine a spotlight on Kisumu, not as simply the third largest city in Kenya, not for its political connections in terms of Kenyan elections, um, but as a place where people can go to get really rich uh, exposure to the arts
12: So I visited Kisumu once a couple of years ago. It sits on Lake Victoria from the banks of uh, the town. It's very pretty. Uh, But I was only there very briefly. So tell us what kind of place Kisumu is.
16: Kisumu is beautiful, first of all. Lake Victoria is definitely one of the main focal points in the city. It's certainly very hot. Um, (laughs) I want to say temperatures were in the 90s when I was there. Um, And in fact, the, the AC was not working during the premiere. So people were, were sweating. (laughs) Um, that's tough. Yeah, it was, but you couldn't tell. I mean, people totally kept their, their glamor despite the heat, which was actually admirable because I failed in that regard. (laughs) Um,
12: I, I got to ask you this, Tamara. I mean, you, you know, um, these comments made recently by Donald Trump about African countries um, and a Hollywood premiere in Kisumu at an IMAX at, at a big mall almost seems an intentional piece of evidence that many parts of Africa are misunderstood by outsiders. I mean, obviously, I come at this with my own American eyes, but was anybody commenting on that last night?
16: There was. I spoke with a very uh, opinionated college student about this. And I I was almost a little struck that she specifically referenced Donald Trump's comment. But she situated that in the context of what the movie means, not just for Kisumu residents, not just for Kenyans, but for people of African descent all over the world. I think that people in Kisumu and in Kenya in general are deeply aware of the way that their country and the way that their culture is often portrayed to the mainstream and how one dimensional and narrow it can be. Um, and so there, there were so many layers to the celebration of this film. And I think one of them was that it, it challenged people to, to confront their own biases and their own one dimensional perceptions of what Africa is and who Black people are and what they're capable of. Um, I heard a lot of people actually referencing, uh, Lupita Nyongo's famous line when she won her Oscar about dreams being valid. Mm. So it was, it was very clear that people see her both as a hometown hero, but really as this beacon of hope, specifically the local artists, you know, because they're trying to get to where she is too. And so people sort of saw the premiere of this movie in her hometown as this pushback to both Trump's comments, but also, you know, it's hard to even scroll on Twitter without seeing uh, a stereotype about the continent so people were almost using the movie as a as a shield against those problematic notions.
12: Tamara, what would you think of Black Panther? And uh, no spoilers here, okay?
16: <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Spoilers are a cardinal sin in my book, so I would never, I would never <laughs> consider it. The film was fantastic. I thought that the plot was really thoughtfully done and political. It touched on themes that I have discussed at length with friends of mine. I love the way that they portrayed certain relationships among characters. Of course, this was a star-studded cast, but even then there were breakout moments from actors that I was not as familiar with that I now want to know more about. Um, I can't even think of a film that comes close to combining the the plurality of, of Blackness in that kind of way. And it did it so effortlessly, And I think it's the kind of film that can only happen when you have the collaboration that you had. You had African actors, you had African-American actors, you had an African-American director from California. Um, And all of those influences were, for me, deeply evident in the film. I thought it was fantastic.
12: Well, I can't wait to see it. Tamara Griffin with BuzzFeed telling us about the special premiere of Black Panther last night in Kisumu, Kenya. Thank you very much for being with us.
16: Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Somebody stronger than me, who that? I'm all ears like Obama. I wish he had another four years. Damn you,
4: Obama. We've been talking with the artist who painted President Obama's official portrait. They were together on stage for the unveiling yesterday at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Obama was the one in the conservative suit. Artist Kehinde Wiley was the man in the dark blazer with broad white stripes. He and I make different sartorial... Decisions. (laughs) But Um, the former president said they relate to each other's stories. A little after 10, on Monday morning, Wiley stood with Obama on stage for the big reveal. Let's do this with a little golf announcer voice. Obama looks much as he always did. Gestures to the artist to make sure he's in the right place. The frame is much taller than both men. Together they're pulling down the black cloth. It's a little stuck. Awkward. They're working it around. And there it is. The former president steps back to get a look. The president, seated forward on a chair, arms crossed, with a spectacular leafy green background that is characteristic of much of Wiley's work. The two men now embracing in front of that portrait and having another look. In the painting, President Obama is surrounded by flowers... Jasmine to represent Hawaii as birthplace. African blue lilies for Kenya, the birthplace of his father. And chrysanthemums, the official flower of Chicago, the birthplace of his political career. The portrait, plus another of Michelle Obama by Amy Sherald, are now part of the collection of the National Portrait Gallery. The presidential portrait will hang in a section of the museum dedicated to such portraits. Lincoln, in his portrait, is sitting forward on his chair, too. George Washington is gesturing as if to tell you to sit down. The other George W. Bush is relaxed, open-collared, on a couch.
1: We tell the story of America by those who have been in the White House. It's often how Americans tell time.
4: We strolled through that part of the gallery with the museum director, Kim Sayet. Her institution commissioned this new painting to mark a time that, as the Obamas took the stage with it, felt both very near and very far away. As we walked the gallery, we turned... And there was the painter Kehinde Wiley. He was next to Elaine de Kooning's expressionist rendering of John F. Kennedy. We talked about the long tradition of painting presidents. It's one of
13: those things that uh, can, in a sense, remain stodgy unless you reinvigorate it with a mm-hmm. new sense of urgency. Yeah.
4: Did you consider the stodgy approach at any time?
13: I did. In fact, uh, what I did was I went through art history books with the president. And we went through it almost as a type of menu, looking at the features of body language, the features of backdrop.
4: Normally you might see a powerful man in his office, maybe with his hand on some books or overlooking a dramatic scene.
13: Very quickly we arrived at the notion that we should try to clear the table. Where do we start at ground level to create something that hasn't been
4: seen before? To talk about how Wiley addressed that challenge, we took a seat on a museum bench. The artist is just over 40 years old. In choosing him, Obama seemed drawn to the artist's personal story. Like the president, Wiley is the son of an American mother and a mostly absent African father.
13: My father was the first of his family to leave Nigeria and go to Los Angeles, California to study at UCLA, where he met my mom. Shortly before my birth, he returns to Nigeria, Mm. and I'm raised by my mother in south-central Los Angeles, one of six kids.
4: His mother didn't have much money but sent him to art class, and he grew up to paint portraits of people from modest backgrounds like his own. As an African-American and a gay man, he felt drawn to outsiders. He often picked his subjects by approaching people he met on the street, and he painted them as they were, in their street clothes, but he placed them in heroic settings, on horseback, or battling the sea in a small boat. And then this painter of ordinary people was offered a chance to paint the most powerful of people. When he interviewed you, because he interviewed numerous artists before choosing one, when he interviewed you for this painting, what did he ask?
13: He asked me about my relationship to power and how it is that I would make a portrait that differs from that power dynamic that exists in my work heretofore. It really came down to... Okay, Kehinde, you do a type of transformation. You take people from everyday life and elevate them to a level of dignity and celebration. What happens when you're painting the head of the free world? What happens in your language as an artist uh, when you're dealing with Barack Obama as the subject for this painting? And I had to respond. And? Well, I must have done something right. (laughs) We're sitting here today. I I can't remember exactly what I said, but I I would imagine that I assured him that the replacement acts that go on in terms of recognizing the unrecognized can definitely be seen when recognizing an artist like myself for this role as storyteller.
4: Last question, because I know you have to go. We're sitting in this gallery. There's George W. Bush. There's George H. W. Bush. Bill Clinton is behind you, and... This painting of President Obama, I believe, is going to be right over here. How do you think it fits in with the other portraits of these presidents? I think it fits in, and
11: it
13: doesn't fit in. I think that obviously it fits in because it's the presidency. It's the celebration of the 44th position of this hallowed position in American history. And it doesn't fit because we are existing in a very exciting new time in which a Black American president has chosen a black American painter to celebrate a continuation of historical precedent and a rip within that fabric. What we're positing here is a new vision of the possible, one which is inclusive, one that says yes to people who happen to look like me, and one that increasingly will catch fire as we go on to inspire young people to imagine new possibilities, new fields of providence.
4: Mr. Wiley, thanks very much. Thank you.
1: years ago, rocker Jimi Hendrix played at a packed Seattle Center arena. He wasn't looking forward to that 1968 concert. He'd just returned to his hometown as a superstar after living for years in London, England. Music journalist Charles R. Cross has written extensively about Hendrix. He told Kim Malcolm the guitarist didn't feel welcome in the city where he grew up.
17: Hendrix had a very difficult family life. Um, both his parents struggled from alcoholism. His mother died when he was 16. That was very difficult for him. His dad had a long history of alcoholism and what one could at least call neglect, if not abuse. The home that Jimmy grew up in was very fractured. He had four other siblings that were taken away or given away by the state. One other brother that he did maintain contact with, but this was not an ideal family.
18: And then contrast that experience with what he had lived with in in Europe where he'd made a new life for himself.
17: Right. He leaves America. You know, he didn't immediately uh, go to Europe right after he started his career. He played on the Chitlin circuit in the South, but he had a hard time breaking through and his race was a big issue in America where black and white radio were dramatically different. No one had crossover at that time. So Jimmy goes to Europe in '66 and suddenly is a star almost immediately. Um, you know, literally within three days of getting to London, he was playing with Eric Clapton. It's it's really truly extraordinary. There has never in the history of the world been a performer who went from nobody to superstar as fast as Jimi Hendrix. The wind
18: And this, of course, was all happening in the year 1968, when there was a good deal of political unrest here in Seattle and across the country. What was that time like for Hendrix?
17: Yeah, so Hendrix returns in 68. This is his first concert as a superstar. He certainly played Seattle hundreds of times before when he was a nobody. But he returns with his album, his hit album at that point. And it was a very difficult time for Jimmy. He was brought here um, you know, to play this concert, but he had mixed feelings about coming back to Seattle. They asked him if he'd go to Garfield High School and attend a lecture and talk, and he went. And this is just unbelievable. So much of Hendrix's story, the truth is very different than the myth that people believe. He speaks at Garfield High School at an assembly, and he's heckled a little bit. And this
18: was he was a student there. I mean, he
17: he had been a student there. So the most famous person who ever will go to Garfield High School returns there, and the students, particularly the African American students, did not completely accept him. Race was such a divisive subject in America at that point that Hendrix who was playing rock music, which was considered white music, was not necessarily accepted by people who liked soul music. Hip hop that wasn't around yet. But there was this divide, and Hendrix was forever uh, tormented by that. He felt that his music was too black to get on many white stations and too white to get on any black stations. No African-American stations ever played any of Jimi Hendrix's songs in America in that time. Um, So he he was saddened by that. Yet in Europe, there weren't those racial divides, which is why he broke out there.
18: He had this tumultuous relationship with his hometown, with his family, with his memories, his experiences here. He didn't have much longer to live after he played that show in February 1968. Did, did he ever come to any kind of reconciliation with, with, his, with his life, his growing up in Seattle?
17: Well, yes and no. How much reconciliation does anyone get at the point of death? No one leaves a life with a perfect death. With Jimmy, um, he had this weird prescient... Vision that he was going to die young, but you also have to remember everyone was dying young then. You start adding that up. Part of that is drug and alcoholism. You throw enough drugs in, and anyone's going to die at twenty-seven.
3: I'm going to leave this town. Gotta leave this town.
18: You touched on this earlier, but you know we're we're fifty years on from February 1968. How would you say Seattle's relationship with Jimi Hendrix? How has it evolved?
17: Well, it certainly shifted. Hendrix is who everyone loves. Um, there finally is a park. You know, I published my book and. 2005. At that point, there was nothing other than a heated rock in Woodland Park Zoo to honor Jimi Hendrix. There was not one official thing. Um, Myself and other people have lobbied for years that Seattle needs to do more to honor Jimi Hendrix. We can name a street after a mariner who retires within three months. But this guy, who I think is the most important cultural person who ever was born in Seattle, um, we finally now have the first thing ever, which is a park. Um, but I think there should be more. You know, if it were me, the SeaTac Airport would be named the Jimi Hendrix Airport. New Orleans calls it the Louis Armstrong Airport. But I'm not in charge of the city of Seattle, unfortunately.
18: Can you imagine what Jimi Hendrix might have to say, what he might think, if he were to look at the state of, of where we're at now in our national life, um, the same issues that he was looking at? Well, he was a young man.
17: Yeah, everyone who lived during that era of the 60s, there certainly is an idea of deja vu. Um, you know, The idea that we'd have mobs marching in Charlottesville with tiki torches, this is something that people in the 60s feel like we're done with as a country. We settled these issues. And yet I think the topic of race was layered into everything Jimi Hendrix did. Um, Even in England, which was a more progressive place, he was harassed occasionally by police for having a white girlfriend. Here was a guy who really felt that music was not about race. He didn't write black music. He wrote music. And he didn't play only to one kind of fans. Primarily his audiences were white, unfortunately. But to Hendrix, race was something that he was always trying to escape from and yet in one way could never actually escape from.
12: This will be the last...
3: Mary
19: Seattle's a great place to visit because
20: it has... I guess you could say a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything.
3: This is KUOW, and joining me now to talk about one of those listener questions is KUOW reporter David Hyde. Welcome, David. Hi, Guy. So what listener question are we going to talk about?
0: All right, so pot is legal in Washington State, right? But it's not like growing
3: oregano is legal. Yeah, well, you can't grow pot without a license, and you can't sell pot without a license.
0: Right, and so a KUW listener wants to know...
2: How many people in Washington State are currently incarcerated for crimes related to cannabis?
0: And this listener is specifically concerned about the inequities in the war on drugs, which has affected African-American communities disproportionately. All right, so what did you find out? I asked the Department of Corrections, and they said around 7 percent, it's actually 7.4 percent of prisoners in Washington State are there for
3: drug crimes, which is around 1,500 people total. 1,500 people total. How many of those, 1,500, are in prison specifically for marijuana crimes.
0: So they don't know. Correction says the way state law is written, it lumps drug crimes together. And I got a very similar answer about that for the Department of Justice, which also prosecutes for drug crimes and marijuana crimes. So what were you able to find out? The arrest data is a lot more clear, and the trends there are kind of surprising. The first part's what you might expect. The number of people arrested for pot crimes has plummeted 86% since it was legalized here. That's according to new data gathered by the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, which is a nonprofit that aims to reduce incarceration rates.
3: How does that situation in Washington state compare to other states?
0: Washington's drop in arrests is actually higher. So in California, it was 82% compared to our 86%. Colorado only 60%. But here's the weird and alarming part. Even though far fewer black people are being arrested, right, because fewer people are being arrested, the racial gap in those arrests is actually a bit worse now in Washington State. In the forthcoming report, the center finds that black people were twice as likely to be arrested for pot crimes in 2016 as other groups, which is actually up from the year before pot was legalized.
3: All right. Is there any theory as to why that's happening?
0: It's a great question. I don't know the answer, but, you know, it makes you think, does it have to do with policing would be one of my questions. Does it have to do with access and who has access to this new legal pot market, which is, of course, very expensive to get into. It's hard to get a license. It's just simply hard to open a marijuana shop.
3: All right. Well, let's go back to the KUW listener who asked this question in the first place. Who was it?
0: Her name is Christine Bryant-Cohen, and she works as a bud tender and assistant manager in this little pot shop in Fremont.
3: So why is she interested in this
0: question? It's personal for her. She works in the legal pot industry. She knows that other people, though, are outside of that industry and perhaps paying a legal price for doing what she effectively does legally, which is selling pot.
2: I'm a person working in the legal cannabis industry. I get a W-2, right? I pay federal taxes. And the majority of people who have been convicted and arrested and done time for selling cannabis and growing cannabis are people of color, they're poor people. That inequity really sticks with me.
4: Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Uh, Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean We're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country.
3: Seven, a message of hate targeting kids at school fueling hurt, fear, and outrage tonight.
8: The email is racist from start to finish and
10: ends with the skull and crossbone symbol of death.
3: 7 Action News reporter Andrea Isom talked to students in Ypsilanti who received the message.
10: I'm asking you, when you listen to these parents and to these students, try to put yourself in their position. Try to feel their anger, their worry, their hurt, and their fear. And then imagine if it wasn't them, but it was you.
21: My stomach was hurting. My head was swirling, I was like really scared like for the rest of that day because you know, the possibilities of something happening. Like right then and there, like I was a sitting duck.
5: It was upsetting, but then that anger turned into like nervousness
10: and like scaredness.
21: It's just really hurtful, like it's like, it's like a, a, like a bullet wound. Are you
10: gonna be able to just get over this and forget about it?
21: No, not No, not at all, no.
10: Ariana and Kasim are both seventh graders at Washington International Middle Academy in Ypsilanti. These young people, these young scholars understand the importance of getting a good education, being good citizens, and treating people with pure kindness. So when they got this email, filled with evil and hate, it broke their hearts and their spirits for a bit too.
21: I'm still out of words now for it. Like it was just that bad.
10: We know someone intentionally sent this email to six black students. In it, the n-word, and what Ariana's parents call a threat, a verbal attack, cruelty, and racism at its core. This and
22: that, and this is our land, and your kids will suffer. At the end of it, go Trump. And then it has seven seven skulls with crossbones. I mean, so there's even underlying subliminal messages Mm -hmm. and not just the words.
10: Ariana and Kasim have not been to school since. Their families fearful and quite frankly upset and how the school and other city leaders have handled what they believe is a horrific incident that allegedly took place at the school they love.
22: They did inform us that the email came from within the school at around 3.30 on Monday, January 29th. The student whose name is in the email, I mean, they have been back into the, the school community.
4: They need to understand that they just need to make it a priority, put their children's face on our children's face, breathe deep and then ask themselves, are they making the push that they're supposed to be making?
10: The Washington County Sheriff's Department assures me it is investigating and taking this matter seriously, interviewing students and trying to figure out who sent this vile email. The school district too, in a statement, seconds that. But this mom and dad say, in the times we live in today, this must be handled with haste. It's always that what if.
4: Why be reactive? We need to be proactive in situations like this.
10: These families tell me they are not going to go away silently and just give up. They're going to keep fighting until they get answers and until they feel like their children's safety is important to more than just them. In Ypsilanti, I'm Andrea Isom, 7 Action News.
8: You got to hope they'll get to the bottom of it. Meantime, it's been almost two weeks, and the parents just want law enforcement to track down the IP address to get to the bottom of this. We are putting the full statement on our website at WXYZ.com. Stephen.
12: This is my
14: rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must
3: master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my
14: enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will. Before God, I swear
13: this creed. My rifle and myself are defenders of my country. We are the masters
14: of our enemy. We are the saviors of my life. So be it
20: until there is no enemy but peace. Amen.
1: Cameron Caskey is angry. He's angry. Because when he goes back to school, 17 people won't be there. 17 people who were killed in a mass shooting in Florida on Wednesday. And Cameron Kasky is with us now. Welcome.
9: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Can you tell us about Wednesday afternoon?
9: Wednesday was great up until then. It was Valentine's Day. Stoneman Douglas was really feeling the love. Something about Wednesday just felt right. It seemed too good to be true, and unfortunately it was. It was the end of the day and I was going to pick up my little brother from his class and we hear a fire alarm. But Holden is in a special needs class, so I was on the other side of the school picking them up. And we went out into the parking lot and everything was going as one would expect a fire drill would go when you're working with developmentally disabled kids. It's a little concerning because it's a high stress situation and not all of them are good at dealing with that. But everybody was great. And suddenly we hear people screaming, run inside. And we weren't shuffling inside. We weren't crisply walking inside. We were sprinting. But none of us knew what was going on, necessarily. We were making our way back to my drama room, because that's my last class of the day. And a teacher, Ms. Driscoll, said, go into that room. And I said, well, we can make it to drama. And she said, no, go into that room right now. And we find ourselves in the room with one teacher and two specialists who were specifically there for certain kids with more specific disabilities. And there were about 20 students. The lights were off. The door was closed. My little brother Holden, again, who does have special needs, was so brave. He kept himself together, probably better than I did. And it was an hour of pain and confusion. And I'm very lucky to be here.
1: You made it out of the school?
9: Yes. We were evacuated. The SWAT team did an excellent job working with the children with special needs. And the entire staff of Stoneman Douglas, all of its faculty, couldn't have handled this better. We were prepared, and if we didn't have the staffers that we did, it could have gone a lot worse.
1: You have now written an essay um, that was published by CNN, and it is called My Generation Won't Stand for This. What does it say?
9: The op-ed piece that I wrote for them Discusses at first what happened with my brother and I, but then what we can do now. Because the main focus of this for me is fixing this. Because this has happened too many times. And I'm very aware that every time this happens, people say this has happened too many times. But unfortunately, it took it hitting me right at home for me to want to do something about it. And I'm not going to stop. The community just took 17 bullets to the heart. And our lawmakers, Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, they have the blood of 17 people on their hands, and we are not apologizing for telling them that they're gone. It's over with them. It's time to put lawmakers in positions who are not taking money from the NRA and are not fostering and promoting this gun culture that's allowing things like this to happen and allowing mentally troubled teens like Nicholas Cruz to buy guns. He was 19 years old and he bought it legally. Forget everything that was going on in his head. Forget the fact that the police were called on him so many times. He was 19 and he bought an AR-15, which is a weapon of war. You don't need an AR-15 to keep your house safe. And that's why... Many of my friends and I have started an online community called Never Again MSD.
1: Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the, the name Marjorie of your Stone school. Marjorie Stoneman
9: Douglas, yes. And we are very thankful for all the support we're getting. As bad as this situation is, it really shows that there are people around here who are doing great things and who care and who are listening and who are as angry and hurt as we are and who are ready to do something about it.
1: What do you say to people who say, don't politicize this, it's too soon?
9: It's too late. It's too late. It's never too soon. The second this happened, it became too late. And to those who say we can't politicize this, they don't understand that if we don't politicize it, no action is going to come from this. We need to start moving now. And as much as we love thoughts and prayers, we don't need them from our lawmakers. We need action, and we demand it, and we're going to get it.
1: How does this go from a Facebook group and an outpouring of support to something
9: it's the people it's going to be the people who have been able to speak out and help that are going to make this happen because we already have support we're going to get things done we're going to show them in the polls the midterm elections are coming up and unfortunately i'm not a russian computer so i can't vote yet but i can inspire people to vote and i can get people punishing those who have hurt us
1: Cameron Kasky is a junior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Thanks for your time.
9: Thank you.
11: Why white supremacy means white male supremacy. When Donald Trump lamented at the loss of one of his employees' career, a bomb of female protest erupted, for he, not surprisingly, ignored the suffering of his employees' ex-wives. The only real surprise here was why the surprise? After the Roy Moore debacle of a U.S. Senate candidate's Lolita complex, as in a hankering for young girls, who can dare plead surprise? Only someone who hasn't really been looking can feign surprise. Trump's central program is to somehow return America to the 1950s when Negroes were quiet. Women were submissive. And Hispanics knew their place, like Mexico, Puerto Rico. This fever dream of Back to the Future reality show is the focus of Trump World. To do this, you have to ignore history to build a new history, an imitation of the supposed old days. Yes, it's crazy, but it ain't the only time the U.S. went crazy. Consider the war mania. That resulted from 9-11. War. On anybody. To quell the beating heart drunk with fear. Iraq. Check. Afghanistan. Double check. War. To salve the worried American soul. In Trump world, blacks don't count. Hispanics don't count. Arabs don't count. Women don't count either. Yes. Even white women. It's time. For the good old boys. From Imprison Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal.
2: As we celebrate Black History Month, today we mourn the passing of a black history icon, Lerone Bennett Jr., the former executive editor at Ebony Magazine, died Wednesday at age 89.
0: Dorothy Tucker talks with his family about the man known by African Americans as the People's Historian.
8: I'm tremendously grateful to God for the gift of the life of Lerone Bennett, Jr. Joy Bennett is the oldest daughter of the author, historian, and former executive editor of Ebony Magazine. This is from Morehouse College in about 1967. It was an honorary degree. Dad had about 15 honorary degrees from... Uh, almost all the black colleges and most of the white ones. As an author, Bennett gained international recognition for his book Before the Mayflower. It tells the history of African-Americans before slavery. It made us proud. We weren't depicted as caricatures. We had a story to tell, and we made vital... You know contributions. But Bennett was best known as the voice of Ebony Magazine, where he worked for more than 50 years. He retired in early 2005, but returned that summer when Ebony founder John Johnson died. Bennett was asked to write the tribute. That's the last time I interviewed him.
14: I want to deal with, with the changes
8: Ebony has helped to spark. What do you want people to remember about your father? He gave his life to black people. And because of him, we have a much better self um, opinion of ourselves. We have a much better life. Ebony CEO Linda Johnson Rice called Bennett the guiding light for the editorial vision of Ebony. The Bennett family is still working on funeral arrangements.
19: Wow. So he covered with Ebony Magazine so many other leaders, but he himself was one.
8: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he not only wrote the stories, he was a part of the stories because he was so involved with civil rights and wrote, you know, he, he was amazing. He really was. It's a big loss.
20: Thanks, Dorothy. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy we will pause to recognize the efforts of loran bennett junior context of white supremacy reading is more important than watching television uh, mr bennett provided quite A bit of reading material uh, both uh, his journalistic offerings as well as the literature before the Mayflower forced into glory I mean Wow what a scholar what a loss Uh, in fact I am considering uh, forced into glory I think I talked yesterday on the book club wisdom of psychopaths last session will be next Friday Uh, I talked about the next book and if people have suggestions or ideas forced into glory i uh, i my general thought is i would prefer to not read that book because it's lengthy uh it's a biography uh, it's it's a 19th century biography, uh, which is not the most popular thing. I do not think most people think. Oh yeah, that's how I want to spend my Friday evening is reading a biography on one of our 19th century U.S. presidents. Yes, that is a fascinating <laughs> way to spend the evening. Uh, but it is an amazing book. It's got nigger jokes in it. <laughs> like it is absolutely priceless. Uh, just a plus scholarship. Uh, thinking about it. I would even be willing to to narrate that one, but have to think. And it's lengthy. That's the other consideration. I think it's a little too long for the book club, but I'll have to think about it. He definitely is is worthy of consideration, though. Uh, Mr. Bennett, reading is more important than watching television, reading and writing. This here, compensatory call-in. If you have commentary, counter-racist suggestions, if you have thoughts on any of the audio segments, we just heard the number to dial six four one, seven, one, five, three, six, four zero, the code five six, four, nine four, three pound, press star six one if you would like to participate number again, six, four, one, seven one five, three, six. Four zero the code five six, four nine four, three pound, press star six one, if you would like to participate a couple of things before we get started, we are listener supported counter racist radio, If you think the cows is a constructive investment of your time and energy is Helped you or other non-white people get a better understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, things we can do to solve this problem. Invest in the broadcast. You can hit my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, Drop us an email. We'll get you a physical mailing address. It has changed anybody who has used the physical mailing address before. Uh, the flood changed all of that. So uh, if you're not uh, interested in PayPal or what have you, you can also invest uh, via my wish list at Amazon.com. It's under Gus T Renegade. I posted it just now on our Facebook group page as well as my Facebook page. Uh, thanks to all the folks who have supported and invested. Nine-year anniversary. If you're motivated, either for the anniversary uh, and want to support, or for the flood relief, either or. Much much gratitude to all the folks who have supported us uh, for a decade. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, I have a few quick comments I want to get in. We had someone who wrote in about workplace racism, uh, and they are requesting commentary, so that's very important. I'm going to make sure I read that untiljusticeatgmail.com if you need my email for whatever reason. Uh, I did want to say quickly, I'm feeling amazing. Uh, I did yoga this morning. Black female amazing class, was great. Uh, I was came back from my yoga class that was at 7.30, came back, had lots of time the whole day to get to work, uh, getting the program together for this evening, got all that done, looked at the clock. It was about 3.15, 3.20, and I kind of had everything together. Uh, so we had about three hours before, or a little less than three hours before the program, and The yoga studio has a class at four. I say, wow, I can walk there in 10 minutes. I will take a second class. Feel great. Second class was great. Outstanding. And just being spoiled by being in the hipster part of Seattle. It's not one, not two, but three different yoga studios that are within 10 minutes walking distance of my house. Two of them are within five minutes walking distance. White people got it made. The system of white supremacy. Uh, okay, so a couple quick things I wanted to get to before I get to the callers. Uh, first of all, since I was speaking of Seattle, Jimi Hendrix has a statue on Broadway. That's one of the main streets in Seattle. I said this, I told a listener, people know Sir Mix a lot, right? Another of Seattle's uh, famous artists, right up there with Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Baby Got Back, right? Sir Mix a lot. He also has another song called My Posse on Broadway. Not as popular. Uh, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. I didn't know until I came here that that is like a major street for people, I guess if you know Atlanta, maybe that would be like Peachtree. Uh, main thoroughfare in seattle on broadway i am about four blocks from broadway he has a statue jimmy hendrix on broadway uh, when i first got here i used to go and play on it but then as i got a little better understanding of racism white supremacy and i got to observe what white hooligans do to statues uh, and all of the filth and things that they plop on it. Uh, Mr. Fuller's commentary about, you know, we should just get rid of the statues to begin with and just focus on treating people in a correct manner as opposed to putting up statues to someone who is dead and acting like we really care about them and, and that sort of thing. At any rate, I concur with the commentary in that report. You don't really get, like, a sense of, wow, Jimi Hendrix was born in Seattle like this was his hometown you do not really get that sense that statue uh, is there but it's not like a glorious big you know thing like it's it's pretty it's pretty small. Like uh it's it's uh, it's not one of those statues that you're looking up at. Like to compare for people who have been to Philadelphia or if you're aware of the Rocky statue, right? The movie the Rocky statue is huge. Like I've climbed on that as well. <laughs> like if you want to just frame of reference, I've climbed on that the Rocky one is huge of this fictitious white pugilist, Jimi Hendrix, real life black music superstar, music genius. Uh it's not the biggest, not the most impressive sculpture uh, that you could think of. And I I mean, you'll like Nirvana, I feel, has a, a bigger presence. Like you'll feel like, oh, wow, Kurt Cobain was here or uh, Macklemore more recently. I feel like you get m- a much greater resonance uh, for these artists uh, that are white uh, and more uh, current, even though Kurt gobain uh, has been dead for, I think, about 25 years or so. But yeah, Jimi Hendrix, I mean, they can say all that, and, you know, we love him and blah, 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 blah. But I mean, you do not feel like, wow, this is Jimi Hendrix hometown. You do not feel that at all. Uh, next. Just uh, question. I was thinking the segment on the Obama portraits. Michelle Obama had portraits as well the segment where they were talking uh with Kahinde Wiley black male does anyone think it's significant that in the system of white supremacy the as they say first black president gets his portrait painted by a black gay male is that noteworthy or not really uh next <clears throat> the Two things. Number one, I was at a birthday party uh, last weekend. Hated it. It was awful. Racism, white supremacy at the core. Not the most important thing or not what I'm discussing here. the The thing that became important was that a white person practiced racism, white supremacy. No surprise there. However, uh, the birthday party was for a one year old. I said, you know, I you know a black female. She just had a child. Blah, blah, blah. One year birthday uh, for the child. So I'm at the party. White woman, she's working at the facility, had the birthday party at a, a facility, not at a private residence or anything. So this white woman, she's working at this uh, community center. I had already had an incident where she was practicing racism against me. She had watched me. Unload with the family uh, for half an hour. We're going back and forth, walking by the front desk where she's sitting, and you know, the whole time she's in and out, in and out, carrying, you know, heavy things, party material, food, all this stuff, in and out, in and out, in and out. Then later on in the day, they have a basketball gym. Uh, downstairs so we're on the second level where the birthday party is taking place and then downstairs they have a basketball gym so I go downstairs just to see the facility like wow this place is pretty impressive and it's big it's huge and uh, she comes and she's just like are you like crashing the birthday party or you know what are you even doing here on the court and I'm just like wow you just watched (laughs) trifling antics like at this point the party has already gotten on my nerves now racist woman is coming in to abuse me and uh, I said, so what do we need to do to get this problem solved? And like she immediately begins to backtrack like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just I was just seeing if you were here, you're with the party. Oh, OK, OK, OK. And uh, then she she leaves. Later on, she practices racism, white supremacy again, this time not against me, though. She's fussing at the birthday child's uh, parents, basically saying that you Uh, Your time for the facility has expired and, you know, if you stay long, you're going to be charged and all this. Anyway, the significance for me was that while this was happening, I had the child. I was trying to give uh, the mother a break. She had been holding him for most of the day. He's not the lightest thing uh, in the world now. I think he's weighing in at about 28 pounds or so, probably a walnut under 30 uh, pounds. And so I'm holding the baby, which is, you know, that is that is unusual for an act of racism, white supremacy to happen in my presence where I'm holding an infant. Drastically altered uh, how I wanted to function in that situation, which I recognized immediately, like once I saw. That she was talking to them in a hostile manner in a situation where I normally would at least get close enough so that I could witness what she was saying, record, whatever. That was not my position at all. It was, I'm gonna get away from this race soldier. I have the child. I have no idea what could happen. If security is going to be called, I'm going to get a little bit more distance because I have the baby. That was one. I would have not done that if, you know, under normal circumstances. This continues like I had been holding. I've been holding the baby for maybe 10 to 15 minutes before I noticed that, you know, things were going awry. And then this continued. So we're talking about, you know, this got to about a half hour. Uh, And so now we're finally getting to the point where we're going to leave. We get outside and I think the child's parents, I think they overheard that this race soldier, this white woman, that she was going to change the time so that she could charge them more money and say, you know, they overstayed uh, their time for the facility. So we're going to charge them, you know, triple the amount or something, you know, egregious. And so uh, the child's father says, oh, my goodness, you're, you're such a thief. This We're out of the facility at this point. Everybody's gone. We're packed up, left, you know, leaving, going to the vehicles. This race soldier, she doesn't lock the door and go about her business. She unlocks the door, comes outside and says, what did you just call me? I still have the baby. Immediately, I turn to everyone and I'm like, oh, no, we're not having an exchange. It's cold. It, it's uh." After 6 p.m. It's dark in these here parts after 6 p.m. So it's dark and it's cold. Uh, I still am holding the baby. He doesn't have a coat on. I'm not interested in having an exchange in talking to her recording. Let's go. Uh, And I'm I'm also kind of thinking this is an uncouth white person. I think the general protocol would be. Close the door, lock the door, make whatever report you need to call the authorities, uh, enforcement officials, if need be, if they're not vacating the premises, not go outside and confront them because you think they might have called you an insult. Maybe I'm ignorant. Anyway, uh, I said this a few times and just walked away to the vehicle and they did leave eventually, but it just stood out immediately because I would not have functioned. I would not have been thinking that way at all if I did not have the child uh, just wow having having children drastically alters how counter racism would be practiced uh and writing I did you know <laughs> in terms of dealing with that incident, a lot of that I would just say go and write and make a phone call the following day as opposed to standing outside while you have you know small children to be cold and all that other things, but I just thought that was significant because I'm generally not attempting counter racism with small children that I'm you know literally carrying in tow. Getting to the listener's commentary or not commentary. She's writing for suggestions. I'm going to read her email. She said, I think she was listening with us on Thursday, but was not able to get this in. And she kind of needs a response immediately. So this is like top priority. She says, uh, I'm a regular listener, black female of the cows and appreciate the insight and advice offered on broadcast. As I'm still learning, listening to the cows has been very constructive for improving my knowledge about racism. I have an interesting workplace situation involving several different scenarios that may be influencing each other. It involves my participation in a group for black staff and a possible covert agenda to undermine me by two suspect racist co-workers calling themselves liberals i'm writing in to give myself a level of deniability although some details may reveal the employer if any other staff members listen in i'm submitting the first of three scenarios i would like individually addressed followed following by an analysis of how they may or may not be impacting each other. I'm currently reviewing our policy and procedures, A+, and taking steps to gather the information needed to correct the co-worker problem. We'll report back the remaining scenarios for analysis on the next Workplace Racism broadcast, which would be this coming Thursday, February 22nd, and hope to have responses from the overseers to share. Background. I am employed at a very Progressive, whatever that means, nonprofit financial organization. The overall mission is to help uh, non-white people, women, presumably white women, low income families, etc., obtain the financial services and products they may not be able to get anywhere else. This organization acknowledges the existence of racism, white supremacy, and has several staff groups for the various racial classifications in addition to new racial equity initiative that's been launched intending to address inequality. She has that in quotes within the organization. For example, there is a white group, a black group, and now a new people of color group in addition to the equity initiative. As you can see, we do a lot of talking and appearing to address the problem. It is also worth noting that the founder regularly receives death threats and has been physically attacked by white supremacist groups as retaliation for related legislative government policy work. He also confirmed that the membership of one Klan group that vowed to destroy him includes two former CIA directors. I was quite shocked to hear this candid admittance of racist government. Scenario number one, the black employees group. I've been participating in this group, in the group meetings to network with black staff, gather intel on white employees and support internal black specific initiatives activities. I've been quite open about my participation in the group, telling white coworkers I'm attending a meeting, etc. And candid during meetings about my knowledge of fake liberals and how they are all pretending to help. I believe this may be a mistake. Me, too. This group is organizing to approach executive leadership about various internal external issues identified to be impacting black people. There have been several planning strategy sessions and meeting requests for data information gathering have been sent to key executives and staff. One high ranking executive already responded, suggesting we broaden the audience Beyond African American staff. Quotes. I see this as an attempt to create confusion and neutralize black progress. The group has been asked to advise on a response to the executive, and some see it in the same way. Early on, other group members pointed out how they have seen these types of moves go bad, including backstabbing among black co workers. I am now considering stepping back my involvement in the group based on problems emerging with white team members and the direction executive leadership is pushing the discussion. Some of the group participants have close relationships with the founder and share anecdotes of their ability to speak frankly to him. This candid culture is also cultivated in the equity initiative meetings that the founder also participates in. Internal numbers show the organization is failing to provide certain loans to African-Americans, and I am suspicious of the timing of the creation of the POC group. This group was created more recently in conjunction with the equity initiative, and I now believe it is intended to neutralize the black group's effectiveness and to shift the conversation to people of color. I'm also starting to realize that it is very possible some of the black staff could be informing in addition to the possibility of internal monitoring as we use organizational resources to facilitate the group meetings, etc. Email conference calls and meetings in rooms where discussion can occur next to offices of white employees. Questions, That she has does anyone have experience with this type of scenario and the possible outcomes please advise on how the group should proceed number two should I continue to put time and energy into pursuing this particular initiative within the group or could visibility on this topic hurt me number three how could we identify a potential informant saboteur number four I want to address my concerns and give a proposed Coded counter racist response for the executive email to the group organizer, including listening to workplace racism, but feel it's more appropriate to do it covertly at this time. I was thinking of printing out my response to the executive's email and meeting off site to express my concerns, give advice, and request it to be read to the group anonymously. Please share additional analysis or insights. She is requesting uh, feedback. Uh, And she needs this pronto. So if folks have commentary on this would appreciate it, please dial in. If you need a question repeated, uh, I can do so. Uh, I'll give some of my quick thoughts. Uh, Number one, I would not on any job uh, make an effort to go around and identify white liberals or to talk about how I know that these people are racist uh, and how duplicitous they are in the workplace, I probably wouldn't do that. I would probably, if I have figured it out, I would just keep that information to myself. Uh, they, in my opinion, doing that sort of thing just calls more attention to you where they say, oh, we have a Negro that is less confused who kind of knows a little bit about what's up with us. You know, We're going to make sure that we go extra hard in mistreating this individual. That's what I've seen a lot of. I haven't seen where it benefits a non-white person to uh, tell racist man, racist woman, racist child that, hey, I know what's going down on the plantation. Generally speaking, that doesn't work out for us. Uh, uh, with the sabotage of the group, I think that's pretty common. I think Stacy in the UK was sharing a similar experience on workplace racism where there was some sort of group that was supposed to be about <clears throat> black staff uh, members, helping black staff members advance and you know get promotions, all that. And she felt the same thing that the group was being sabotaged or maybe they you know, had members who were uh, informing, uh, taking information back to white people, snitching, they call it sometimes. Uh, these tactics are very, very common uh, codes of how you maintain, how you operate a system of racism, white supremacy. Um, I would probably think about whether or not you want to participate uh, in this group if it's voluntary, if this is not a part of your workplace duties. Uh, I don't know how involved I would want to be unless you want to be there for the purpose of refining how you practice counter racism, studying and learning about racism, white supremacy, and how it works in these type of environments. That might be worthwhile. If you don't want to do that, then, you know, I might just say, hey, I got other things to do with my time and energy. It looks like uh, the racists are going to, you know, successfully manipulate, you know, what they want to happen with this group. And and you said you seemed like you're you're observing that anyway. Um, The question, how could we identify a potential informant, saboteur? The conclusion that I've reached on this is, and this is just years of study, years of evidence, that's all I'm doing. It seems victims of white supremacy worldwide are very bad at picking out which other non-white people are carrying information back to racists. It seems that we are very, very bad. Uh, at picking this out, either we do a lot of what they call false positives, meaning we identify John and say John, we think you are a quote unquote snitch, and it turns out John isn't, but we have beaten him up and called him a coon five hundred times before. You know, people find out John was cool in the gang, uh, or we miss. It turns out that Fred actually was carrying information back, but. We missed. We never did think we were never suspicious of Fred. So what I have concluded the smart thing to do is just to assume that you're not going to get everybody and to be very comfortable with that. And what that means is speaking all the time as though you're being listened to. You said that they got some of these meetings are next to white people's offices. They have technology that you probably haven't even heard of for recording and all kinds of snooping. So the way that you cut through all that is, hey, have all the saboteurs that you want. I'm not going to invest any time or energy trying to figure that out. My code is going to be any time that I talk to anybody about anything, especially relates to racism, white supremacy, I'm going to act like Everything that I say is going to be transcribed. Written down on video on YouTube, Uh, they're going to have it translated to about 100 different languages and it'll be available for free for the next 20 years. Just get accustomed to functioning that way. And that way, it's no problem. No problem. I will, as Mr. Fuller said, I will stand by my word, by my work Anytime, any day. That doesn't that means regardless of what you take back to, you know, whoever, all of the whites, you can, you know, send it to all of them. Yes, that's what I said. Is there a problem with that? That, in my view, is the best way to handle it, because the evidence shows that we just have failed. And if at this point this problem has been going on for centuries, if we haven't gotten better at solving that problem of picking out which non-white people are, quote unquote, snitching, we're not going to. That's how you solve problems, in my opinion, to just say we're not going to do it as long as the system exists. Racists have got that on lock, it seems. What do you do to compensate? Last question. Additional. Uh, and, And the same thing with question four about it being read anonymously. Same thing. I think there's probably a high likelihood that whites on your job would figure out. Who read it, especially if you're going to meet with the non white people off site and talk to some of them. Again, you don't know who's talking to them. Whites can apply all kinds of pressure to non white people. Uh, if you want it shared uh, on the job, I would say be willing to have it associated with your name. If you don't want to do that, then I'd say you don't want to share it. That would be. Uh, My view on it. I think that's the way that things uh, have to operate in a workplace situation, because so many times efforts to try to conceal and be secretive about it so many times that just gets uh, foiled and then you have all kinds of problems. So if it's something that you want said, uh, if you're not willing to say it. Put it in your workplace journal. And again, study, learn what's happening in your environment. Uh, If folks, if what I'm saying doesn't make sense, it's not logical. You can certainly say that. Or if you just have your own views, your own answers to these different questions, uh, please share. She is requesting insight uh, and insight pronto. Uh, With that, we'll get to the callers. The number six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code 564943 pound. Press star six one. If you would like to participate, if you could take five minutes to share your commentary, that would be great. Uh, Make sure that everyone gets an opportunity to speak. You could use your mute button as well. That would be super appreciated. Uh, If you know you got people making noise uh, in the background doing whatever, uh, just make your commentary and then mute your line. That'll be great. You can open your line back up if you have more to say. Uh, If we could not use metaphors, that would be great. Uh, It's been my experience that racists frequently uh, they will make comparisons, analogies between entities that are not separate at or not equal at all. But they will insist, oh, yeah, these two things, they're almost, you know, identical. They'll do this consistently. That is a form of master deception. That is an act of white supremacy. Non-white people. We've been exposed to this sort of behavior for a long time. And many of us, Gusty Renegade included, we are still learning. We have not come to conclusions. And so sometimes we don't have a, level, a logic to articulate our views. We will substitute and use a metaphor. And often that just contributes to a lot of confusion. If we can make an effort to be explicit, exact about what it is we want to say, that would be super appreciated. I will prompt about that. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get to the folks who uh, first few folks anyway, who uh, dialed in. If you have a hand up proceed
23: gabby heard uh
20: i heard thomas in new york did also hear a female caller maybe i didn't i thought i heard a female caller uh i guess thomas in new york did you want to go first i also heard a female caller Um, she
24: could
20: go first uh...
25: Um, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, this this is blackmail, blackmail.
20: Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Apologize.
25: Yeah. Um, uh, good evening, Gus. This is um, Kwame from the Bronx. Uh, I'm the blackmail caller that called in last week um, seeking advice about how to get over a recent breakup that I had with a black female uh, that broke up with me basically because of my issues on racism, white supremacy, and just want to thank you again for the uh, for the advice. And thank you and all the callers. Um, this week was like really uh, hard, especially. I felt like real, a little lonely this week because of the um, European sex ritual known as Valentine's Day, uh the horror days as Dr. Kamal Kemban would call it, H-O-R-R-O-R, um D-A-Z-E. And um yeah, so it was rough. Uh but something I didn't hear the clips, but um something that I did this week that was really interesting was um well I, I go I attend like I attend a predominantly white university in New York City. Um, and, uh, every Wednesday there's this black student union meeting that goes on. Uh, I haven't really been able to attend, um, recently because of, you know, school and work and stuff, but this week I, I was able to go. I found time to go and they were talking about Valentine's Day and, one of the emphasis, um, one of, something that was emphasized during this meeting was interracial relationships, eight, um, Area 8, which was, that's the CalGO. And it was really um, uh-huh. nauseating and really an interesting conversation. Uh, so, uh, at the meeting, it was just a lot of black male misandry. That's something that I noted at this meeting. Basically, um, it's something that Dr. Tommy Curry uh, talks about a lot, and I'm in complete agreement with him. Everything he says about the black male misandry that goes on on these college campuses, it's, it's 100% true. It's like these black females at this meeting, It was basically the ratio of this meeting was about 30 black females to about 5 black males at this meeting. and It's like All the black females at this meeting were going on these long rants and tirades about how no good black males are and how much, you know, they're trifling. That's a word that was used often. I I tried to get a definition for that term because I remember, I know you like to say how words are important and they are important, but uh, didn't didn't get a definition for the word trifling from any of these black females that were using this term so much um, to describe black males, and it was just real, uh, a lot of confusion that went on. Uh, A lot of black females on this college campus had, have, you know, white boyfriends and things like that, and it was really, and they were, yeah, exactly, and they were big enough, they were, uh, how can I say this, they were really, they used a lot, of glo- a lot of nice terms to describe their relationships and was just really giving a lot of these white males props <laughs> for, you know, for dating them and while at the same time disparaging all the um, black males. And, you know, the black males in the, at the meeting, you know, they were all really respectful, me included. We were all really polite, respectful. I didn't speak at the meeting, but a lot of the black males that did talk um, talked about how much they like black women and and you know kept complimenting black females and all of that, but like it's just like black female after black female just kept going on these long rants and tirades about how no good black males are that we don't protect them we're this with that. It's like it was just a real it was really hard to sit through. But again, VGQ, I tried to take as many notes as possible and. Uh, I'll share some more about that meeting later on if there's time left. So um, thanks again for letting me share.
20: Indeed. Indeed. I I don't know. Maybe I just have a warped sense of humor, but I thought that was uh, hilarious that you were not able to get a definition for the word trifling uh, at a meeting with folks who are presumably, you know, college educated or in the process of being college educated, but words definitions are very Very important. Uh, And I have seen where a lot of conversation, particularly conversations where there could be like conflict, uh, major disagreement, where sometimes just halting and asking for a definition like, whoa, (laughs) everything uh, can stop when you find out people are using terms and don't really have a definition that they can give you in a clear, concise manner, Uh, that can be a a big, big problem. We might need to slow the conversation down Uh, with regards to what happened at the meeting. the the actual ratios, I don't think that's surprising. I think that's the way racists have been operating education in this part of the world for a while in terms of really making sure that fewer and fewer Uh, Black males are getting any sort of even remnant of quality education. Not I think that's been pretty consistent for a number of years. Uh, And in terms of black people griping and complaining about other black people, that is all day activity uh, under the system of white supremacy, whether it's black males complaining about black females, black females complaining about black males, uh, black whatever, older people complaining about black children. That happens in a variety of forms. Worldwide, uh, one of the major products of racism, white supremacy. And in my view, when we are not identifying what is causing all of these problems as racist man, racist woman, racist child, invariably, that is what's going to happen. It's going to be some form of that just sitting around. and, And I mean, even if you just come to the end, like, oh, okay, so black males are worthless and, you know, trifling and can't protect all of which, you know, might be true under the system of white supremacy. What should be done? Uh, you can just try to solve problems as quickly as possible. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have uh, responses to any of the questions the listener was requesting feedback for, that would be grand. Uh, if you have other commentary, feel free. Oh, Thomas in New York, did you want to go? You yielded?
24: Yeah, sure. Um, thank you, Wes. Um You know, one thing I do notice is, even for my cousin um, and a few other young females that I've spoken to, is that somehow colleges um indoctrinating um these young black women into these ideologies um I believe where they don't see a future with black men. Um they they speak very negative about black men. Um you know it and I, I find it to be clear cut across the board, um and it, it changes the way they think you know, to me in general. And um also, um, they think they're feminists, and um, they think that somehow they're included in this um, feminist movement, when um, I think that's a very dangerous mindset because they're not. Um, but, you know, I could be wrong. Um, I did have some things I wanted to add about the clips. And uh, if Tom persists later, I, w- I did have something I wanted to add about the lack of black athletes in the Olympics and why I think that is Um, the kumbaya or um, come here, boy, I guess, um, clip. That was very interesting because, um, you know, once again, white supremacy. I always thought that that was some um, white Catholic kumbaya. I remember them singing in in, um, Catholic school um, (laughs) in their little uh, mass sessions and stuff. So I'm glad that I got some clarity on that. comes from the Gullah people. Um, it was a clip, man. I didn't get the exact slogan, um, but they had translated uh, a movement in France and I think the movement was from France to Ferguson, and then it was something black, and then in American, it translated to "Not Your Mama" movie or something. And I just said, not how can you make such movement, a difference? Man. It marks "Not Your Mama's" movement. Okay, so how can there be such a huge you um, the uh, disparity in how it's translated from one language to the next, unless white supremacists are involved, and I just think that that's amazing how they got away with that. Um, also on the the clip from um overseas, um, I mean they were talking about this some um, organization that was being charged with some of the rape in, um hating and things of that nature, and um, how that's even outdone the Olympics and as far as. Uh, front page news in, in the UK, and then the, the, it seems like their penalty is 1,600 people, you know, drop their subscription to this um, organization, you know, I mean, like, you know, that's nothing, <laughs> you know, you, you have an organization that's blatantly found to be doing things wrong, and this is a, a huge thing with white supremacy. And they'll show you a number like they're being tarnished, you know, 1,600 people. But they probably have, you know, they have millions of people who are uh, donating to this organization. And only 1,600, you know, feel the need to drop it. So, um, you know, I just think that's um, just how they work things. Um, The clip about um, the movie Black Panther. Um, and uh, one thing that uh, I heard Scotty Lee say that I think is interesting is the longer when you put in a search for the Black Panthers, you know, do you come up to the actual Black Panthers? Now, the movie has pretty much taken that away. Um, when I was a kid, and I hate to use this, um, metaphor, but I think it it fits, um, very well. We had our Wakanda, it was called Zamunda, um, this, um make-believe African kingdom is sophisticated, well-dressed people living well and decadence. You know, and Wakanda is like the modern-day version of that. Um, they just added a little technology to it in a ranch country, you know, 500 years in the future with all these resources that they control. So, you know, it sounds great, but in the same clip, they say, "Um, are in Kenya. And Disney, who's having this big, time screening, which I know they're spending a lot of money for to promote this movie, they're in an IMAX with no air conditioning, you know? So it's just so unrealistic. You know, none of the African countries control their resources. None of them are living, you know, 500 years in the future. Let's talk about maybe 500 years in the past. So um, it, this is just um Hollywood make-believe. And uh, I don't really subscribe to it for that fact. Um the clip you played about Washington State legalizing weed and then the arrest of um blacks had doubled in two thousand sixteen. And I, I said it um a while back on the show. When they legalize weed, they're gonna come down twice as hard than those who selling weed illegally. You know, um they don't they're not gonna legalizing for one people and and, um, having competition out on the corner. So um, I think that that pretty much showed that um, they're going to cut out the local people and um, that those people are going to be coming down on twice as hard. Um, Nicholas Cruz um, is a white identity extremist. Heavy web presence in the neo-Nazi sites and their chat rooms post and repost in their comments. He has racist tattoos. Um, he posted he was going to shoot up the school on someone's YouTube page. That person informed the FBI, and the FBI never followed up on it. They never arrested him. They never disarmed him, even though he has a mental illness. Then you got Laqueen Bolivar, Bolivar, uh, a.k.a. Christopher Daniels, arrested for gun charges for Cause he had a gun and, um, in another state, he had a domestic dispute, a misdemeanor, and, um, that disqualified him for having a gun. So they went as far as to both all of that effort to arrest this black man. And, um, he the first person charged as a black identity extremist monitored by the FBI because of his social media posts. So there's a double standard here. um, these white people are the ones shooting things up. I can remember just not too long ago, it was a concert where white people shot up a whole country music concert, and um uh, was never called a terrorist. And this kid was never called a terrorist. It's just a an ongoing part um pattern. Um Dylan Roof, Dylan Storm Roof, never called a terrorist, and he reminds me of him. And um just the last thing I wanted to add, Gus, is um these people with Spanish last names. Remember, a lot of them are white. I'm mute my line.
20: Appreciate that, Thomas, in New York. Great point about the uh, lack of air conditioning at the IMAX. Uh, Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed.
21: Hello, can I be heard? Greetings, Puff. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Greetings pop it you. Yes. All right. Uh quick comment that I wanted to make um about the uh person that went to a meeting and it was more women uh than men and he felt outnumbered and you know this is standard operating procedure, you know, in uh I'm telling my I'm speaking from the perspective of black woman. Uh, The black woman have not been conditioned uh, in the system of white supremacy to cooperate with her man. And, you know, they're reinforcing this. I think it's uh, on on the YouTube website under that Mr. Fox channel. It's a thing, it's a whole like thing of it where uh, one of the white patterns now is they're not showing a black family intact together. So we have never seen a black, you know, cooperation with a with a with a black man or whatever. And so this should be no surprise, as usual. You know, thank the usual suspects for for this. And so uh, the the only thing I can say is he just had to have more patience, a little more patience, or you know, get you know. Get someone who is in agreement with or uh, you know with with him but uh, as far as you know in a meeting and all this i mean i personally i would i would say that i'm I'm sorry about that that you you know feel uh put upon or whatever embarrassed in front of a meeting, but this is you know as usual standard operating procedure you know for the white supremacy situation. They putting all these biracial kids on TV and all that not to have a black family, a whole, you know, intact black family. They don't, they don't show that. They even show not only in commercials, but like I was watching, my nephew is, is when he was smaller, they put a thing on TV where I can't think of the name of that show, but it's on PBS where, like, it looks like a black mother but white father. So they they conditioning this in TV shows and stuff. And then they also conditioning you, you know, as far as, you know, from little kids. I mean, conditioning. The Nickelodeon shows and all that type of stuff, they don't have no dark black kids on there. They got biracial kids on there. And this other boy... This boy's so fair skinned. I mean, he's still black. He identifies as a black person. It's not his fault. But, you know, it's it's the white supremacist's fault, you know, for for making like and I noticed that with my with my nieces, they only wanna like when my niece goes to a social, she's not but ten. My niece is ten. And she only want to be associated. She don't want to associate and create friendship with a dark black girl. She just want to create a friendship with a biracial kid or somebody. You know what I'm saying? They just conditioning these people to to. Be. In other words, the color of Zendaya. The girl. The girl is biracial. She got a white parent. And they constantly conditioning you to be looking at these people on TV instead of a black woman. And so that's all I want to say. Go ahead, next person.
20: Appreciate that, Puff. I did want to get in uh, quickly. Uh, Fair-skinned, uh, Mr. Fuller does have in the word God, uh, and I strongly agree uh, recommending that we not uh, use the term fair, uh, not reference someone as having Uh, fair uh, skin, they use the term fair that gets associated with justice as well. Uh, It uh, suggests that if you have lighter, a lighter complexion, less melanin, that you are deserving of justice, correct treatment. Uh, And if you are darker skin, you are not deserving of correct treatment. So definitely want to suggest not using the word fair, certainly not fair skin. And uh, I was thinking even with the film Black Panther, I can't think, excluding documentaries, because I really enjoyed the documentary on Whitney Mandela that was on, speaking of PBS, just came out on PBS this month, maybe for Black History Month, even though it's talking about South Africa, but it was fantastic, loved it. Uh, But excluding documentaries, I can't think of any black movies that I really enjoyed that came out in the last quarter century that has mostly black people in it, like I can't think of anything other than, I think, The Boondocks. That was one, and that's, ooh, depending on which episode it is, and Love Jones. And I kind of go back and forth on that. But generally, if it's a lot of Black people in the movie, I generally expect it to be a lot of anti empire, precious. That's kind of what I expect if it's a lot of Black people in it. I don't know why I would think Black Panther would be any different. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Uh, proceed. You have heard? Yes, ma'am.
26: Is
5: the uh, volume and, and the sound and everything okay?
20: Uh, you sound like you might be a little close to your microphone. Maybe you can uh, back away from your microphone, maybe just a little bit.
5: Let me try to... Uh...
20: Or turn your Put volume my earphones down, turn your volume down maybe uh maybe a notch or two that might help.
5: I'll try headphones real quick
20: uh and in fact yes, if, it's not it's not like we can't hear you it would just be a little clearer uh if you you know don't want to take too much time adjusting it because we can't hear you. I just thought if it was if you could either Is turn it off
5: the- that- I'm sorry, hello
20: yes, ma'am we can hear you.
5: Okay, is this any better?
20: Uh, You're good. Go ahead.
5: Okay. I'll just put on earphones now. Um, I wanted to mention the Ally ally Toolkit that you went to, as well as the uh, Dallas uh, 5 so-called murder. Um, I think that, like, uh, one thing I heard from the Ally Toolkit, if I'm correct and remembering right, uh, they said, the whites there said, we can't rely on people of color or something like that. Um, Something about to be having this conversation or something along those lines. And I think the reason for those allied toolkits, these anti-racist so-called anti-racist whites and things, things of that nature. I think they are doing this because they want to make it seem like they are doing something about the problem so that we won't get together and do something about the problem. And they, they talk like, you know, this is their problem to solve, and it's not because they're not going to. If they were, then it would be their problem to solve. And so for us, I think they want us to look at it like, well, there's no need really for us to get together and try to solve it because, you know, they're going to do it. And given the fact that we've been conditioned to worship them and we do, I think that their hope is that that will cut down, and it probably does, cut down a lot of a uh, strategy and a lot of us getting together um, to try to solve the problem. The same thing with the uh, the Dallas Five so-called murder. I don't believe that happened at all. I believe that it was fake. I believe that if there was no open caskets in that so-called funeral, there wasn't nobody in those caskets. And if it was, there was all actors and all that stuff. And the reason why is because I watched, I listened to an episode, I don't know if it was the Henry of Lacks. I want to say it was that the, the book study session, And I remember you mentioned Lavelle Mixon, and I had never heard of this man. And that's a situation where he, you know, he killed, I believe it was four cops, and then they ended up killing him. That is a killing that they they suppressed. Oh, are you with us,
20: ma'am? HV, are you with us? We're not hearing you. Uh, when you said suppressed, interestingly, the last word we heard was suppressed. Uh, we are not hearing you. I don't know if you got disconnected or uh, if something happened with your audio, but we are not hearing you. Uh, if she got disconnected, uh, you can dial back in. I think she may have been disconnected. If you want to dial back in, uh, HV, I'll be on the lookout for you on the switchboard. Just press press. Uh, star six one, and I'll uh, go ahead and open your line up uh, promptly uh, when you dial back in. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am.
19: Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. And the um, so first one to comment about the uh, the black female. I think it was a black female who wrote in about the workplace racism definitely glad that she um, wrote in about it because I actually um, was considering joining a a group just to kind of just learn some more, Um, not so much to actually have input, um, but actually at my my current job, um, they they do offer different groups. Um, Some of them are quote-unquote racialized. There's one which is the largest one, which is the anti-sexual group. Um, but within the group, you can either be a full-on member or you can just be um, a supporter, which it, the, and the only way, the only way that they differentiate is um, if you go to the group and say, well, you know what, I support you. So I guess like with the anti-sexual group, it's like, okay, well, you know what, I'm go- I am I support you. It, it, they really didn't explain it clearly. Um, you can just be like, okay, well, I guess I'm, I'm assuming that it is, well, I'm all right with your your lifestyle choice. And then the other, the second step to be a full-on member is um, you actually helping them with their little gatherings or whatever. So um, I was definitely very, um, with the quote-unquote black group, I was definitely kind of curious and not so much wanting to be a full-on member, but just to see what it's like. So I definitely can understand where she's coming from with these, you know, um, I guess I don't, I, she might call it racial integrity or something along those lines. What I would say is like with my approach is just to observe, just to observe and take notes. Don't, I I wouldn't say, you know, do as much, do the least amount as possible, just so you can see what's going on in this, uh, in these groups. And just like Gus said, I definitely agree. Just expect that you are being recorded or someone is, um, going to try to use that against you so uh, I try to whenever I speak it's I try to make it very calculated and not say anything that I wouldn't say in front of a room full of white people and actually I noticed one of the things that I have started doing is I'm constantly looking in the, looking up at the ceiling no matter where I go not saying that you know like they can't hide cameras that you don't see but actually within the room that we're um being trained in they have microphones hanging down in the ceiling i've never seen anything like that but you know it's it, it is what it is um i i appreciate the the new caller calling in and i just wanted to say to him that it does definitely get very lonely um you know especially i've been through the same thing too not so much with you know i guess uh quote-unquote love interests uh interests but um with family members but you know that's why I definitely listen to the cows a lot participate because you know we you know we can at least you know listen to each other and try to learn and you know definitely even if the black females at the college didn't appreciate you still being respectful you know there are other people out there you know who who do appreciate that and I agree also with Thomas I felt like I was um I felt like I was starting to kind of get indoctrinated in high school about being, um, you know, uh, thinking of myself as a woman, which was, you know, complete fallacy, but it was more along the lines that they were teaching us about the women's suffrage. Um, the thing, and now on the segment, I, I thought the same thing about the, the presidential portrait segment, like why it had to be, he was, he was basically a first generation, uh, black immigrant who was also gay which kind of goes along with um president obama's past uh you know him being really big in gay legislation and i thought it was interesting that the um the interviewer he said at one point he said normally you would see a portrait of a powerful man but then it's kind of like obama changed that and the last thing i wanted to say about the the florida shooter I don't actually care anything about that Florida shooting. And I say that because, like, still being here and they don't even refer to the Vegas shooting as the Vegas shooting. They'll say things like October. And I had to figure out what they were talking about. And it's like, oh, it occurred in October. So you're not even referencing it as the shooting. And um, and they still have, they'll, they have big poster boards. I think one said, shoot a 50 caliber for, like, $30. It was on this same street. They have a adult strip club or i I, I didn't know how to say it but they have a strip club a gun range and a weed dispensary so these people absolutely do not care that about any gun legislation so if they don't care i don't think we should care either and i'll meet my line thank you for allowing me to share
27: that
20: is las vegas man (laughs) i can i mean unless you have been there that is Las Vegas. What she said, weed dispensary, gun range, strip club, and probably littered with flyers for prostitutes all in between all of those different uh, establishments and chocolate covered deep fried Twinkies on every corner only in Vegas, man. <laughs> like, that's why I crack up laughing. Anytime they talk about justice and more <laughs> anyway, uh great point. Uh, about the uh, portraits uh, read in via the presidential portrait that uh, we used to have portraits of powerful men and now we got hmm, obese uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all if you have uh, commentary uh, and great point as well if you're going to join any of these groups at work like the you know black staffer group or whatever it is going there with the purpose of learning not I'm going here to you know with the initiative we're going to get that I'm going here to learn about how racism white supremacy works in the workplace, and maybe great environment to try out asking questions. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed.
5: Hello, you heard?
20: Yes, ma'am. Oh, is this h v this is oh great. We uh, so the last weird re- word we heard was suppressed, <laughs> where you were talking about Lavelle Mixon. You hadn't heard about that suppressed.
5: Okay, uh, first I want—I don't think I said greetings before. So greetings to everybody, greetings guys, uh, and thank you for taking my call. Uh, I want to say one uh, quick comment about the the Ally Toolkit. Is that the reason they want to take the conversation out of our hands is because, like you said. If they are not going to stop practicing racism, then we have to force them to do so. And they know that. And so, if if it's us, if, if 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 the onus is on us to try to solve this problem on our own without their help and without their influence, then you know that's a problem for them. Going back to the suppression thing, when Lavelle Nixon killed those four or five cops, I think it was four. You know, they suppressed that. Like I, I had never even heard of him until you said something about him you know it's possible in 09 I might have saw his face I don't even think so it just seemed like his face looked familiar but I could just know a lot of people who look like him but I never heard his name before I don't remember that case any of that but when it came to the Dallas uh shooting they they it was trending on Twitter and everything and I think the message that they wanted to send as well is that if you do this you know we're going to blow you up with a with a with a robot which makes you even more fearful so you know if there was people who felt like they felt In Oakland and going through what they were going through, what what we are going through, that people certainly felt like that after what they did to Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. So I think they went and staged this so-called shooting to try and to to let people know that, you know, I know that, you know, especially the men, you know, who are seem like less afraid than us that y'all, you know, probably want to stand up and do something about this. And you probably want to take care of it in, in this way. We've already done that, so that can kind of, uh, I want to say, quell the, the, the anger and, and things of that nature, and the hurt and and the pain and and the um, provocation um, from the Lavelle mixins of the world to say, okay, well, they we we got them back or whatever to you know throw Micah Johnson, who may not even exist, under the bus and all of that. So I wanted to know, I guess, what people thought about that in terms of you know, having these anti-racist and the ally toolkits and all this stuff to try to take the conversation out our hands for fear of what might happen to them if we are the ones who are strategizing about this issue and if we are the ones who are taking action in this war that they're waging against us, like LaVille, Mixon did, and, you know, some other people. And so that's all I had, and uh, I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking my call.
20: Thank you, H.V. Under the Bus... And taking something out of our hands, uh, the conversation about white supremacy, presumably, uh, those are metaphors. Want to watch that? Try to be explicit for the broadcast. Uh, People can answer the question as they share their thoughts uh, that she posed about the purpose of these uh, type anti-racist type meetings, uh, the reason that they're having them. Uh, Other people that we've not heard from at all. uh, We have people that we've not heard from at all. If you have a hand up, uh, proceed.
26: yes ma'am um can everyone hear me yes ma'am um okay thank you all um for allowing me to share on the uh, broadcast this evening I, I wanted to first uh mention something about the workplace racism question um while i've not been on a job where we explicitly had groups like um the lady who wrote in mentioned i i agree with everyone who um advised her not to uh, get too involved, um, particularly because I worked in a very, I guess, conservative or political environment at one point. And I will say that my experience with the non-white people on the job was one of the most interesting experiences I've had um, because they these were like 30-year professionals, some of them. And. I can tell you that not all non-white people are going to be your allies. Um, And I would say that's due to confusion and also anti-Blackness. I had several instances where uh, basically people were warning me not to be too Black on the job. So, uh, And again, with definitions, you try to get people to describe what that is, and they can't. So you just kind of leave the conversation there, but you definitely have to be very careful with feeling too comfortable with speaking to other non-white people, just because you assume that they will be on the same page with you, and more than likely they will not. Um, I wanted to um, ask a question myself about self-care, particularly with uh, so much going on in the world and so much media coming at us constantly, uh, so many images, so much stuff that, you know, if you're really serious about confronting racism, um, you can get very fatigued. And I feel like I'm in a place of fatigue, uh, particularly with um, some of the hysteria that's just going on, all the politics, um, some of the things even in the clips, uh, I I can't even get into because I don't want to get off on a tangent. But Particularly with the school shooting, um, I noticed that uh, if you go onto, you know, social media, there are people who are pointing out the obvious, you know, white supremacist connection that this this person had. Um, but I noticed that whenever we're dealing with any type of mass shooting or racialized violence in this country there is no real acknowledgement. They try to steer as far away from identifying these people as white supremacists as possible. And not only is that just inaccurate, but it's very dangerous, not just for non-white people, but a lot of times white people are the victims of this same kind of violence themselves, particularly when it comes to school shootings. So I'm not really sure. why white people are so um determined not to identify white supremacy for what it is except for in the cases where it's really like a poor white person or you know one one of those people they can kind of um i guess consider white trash if you will to use that their term um but they're very hesitant to do that um but again it's it's overwhelming being a non-white person or uh, person of African descent to constantly confront uh, racism. So if anyone um, else has any comments on how to deal with the self-care in a time like this, I would be greatly appreciative. Uh, thank you.
20: I appreciate that. My quick comment, uh, number one, uh, on the same page, metaphor, one prompt about that. Uh, the With regards to self-care, I think Dr. Marva Robinson. She was a guest. She's been a guest uh, more than once, actually. She's a psychologist in the Missouri area. She offered assistance uh, during and after the Ferguson upheaval in uh, 2014, and ongoing, I guess. Uh, But she said uh, she recommended, you know, if you're feeling stressed, overwhelmed uh, with you know things that are happening, shooting reports, or any other aspects of the the violence uh, against black people, uh, to certainly feel free to stop reading the paper or feeling like you have to read these reports or watch any of these videos. That's something that I stopped doing. I don't watch any of those uh, dash cam videos or, or any of that, because I think that's just another form of, of traumatizing uh, black people uh, making time. I mean, if you're feeling stressed, uh, I would say make time uh, for like extensive time. If that means taking uh, a couple days from work, Uh, Or making a weekend where you just say, hey, I'm gonna make time for me and do things that are constructive and healing for me. Uh, If you're close to water, uh, I'm going to spend some time near the water. Uh, If you have friends and family that you don't have conflict with and it's actually nourishing for you to be in their presence, uh, you all can do constructive things and enjoy each other's companionship, spend some time with them. Uh, If you have physical activities, I have certainly uh, been excited uh, about my yoga activities, but you know, if you have something else, hiking, swimming, whatever it is, make time to do that. But uh, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling stressed, uh, that is serious. Uh, That sort of stress uh, on black people. I think uh, Lauren Kresslove, she talked about that with Dr. Welsing when you have that uh, just daily stress that just really wears away at your Uh, health, your spiritual health, mental health, physical health, just all the way. So make time uh, for care. Uh, Feel free to discontinue uh, activities that are are stressful to the degree that you can uh, for just like I said, make space a weekend or a couple days and and just do some things that are going to make you feel better uh, and help you uh, feel like your health uh, is in a better position, if that makes sense. Uh, And again, responding other folks uh, as we go get other callers, you can respond to the questions or a question about self-care, the question about the Dallas uh, shoot or the uh, anti-racist workshop type events. Uh, People want to respond to those questions And our workplace racism scenario from the black female caller. Uh, Other folks, we've not heard from at all. uh, If you have a hand up.
26: Yes, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, good after uh good evening I should say. Uh, I um I did something yesterday that I do not think was uh indicative of black self respect. I actually saw Black Panther. Um and it was perhaps one of the most racist pieces of crap I've ever seen. I mean, I'm sorry to say it like that, but it was just it was just very um You know, I was listening to the the clip that you played earlier, and I just, you know, they were talking about how this showed, uh, you know, African descended peoples uh, and people across the diaspora as as, uh, multidimensional. And it it actually was a very stereotypical film in a lot of ways, Um, the way they represented uh, these folks from this fictional country, Wakanda, versus... Uh, descendants of U.S. slaves and how the descendants of U.S. slaves were savages. And, uh, you know, then they all get into a fight over who's going to or should we save the white people or not? So now we're fighting over white people. And then in the end, well, you know, the Africans were responsible for slavery in the first place. So that's the reason why this kid is such a savage. You know, um, that was an awful film. I actually feel pretty ashamed of seeing it. Small consolation. Everybody looked absolutely gorgeous in the film. So that was, that was a good thing, but yeah, that was just my two cents on that. So with that, I'll mute my line.
20: My two cents as a metaphor as well. I don't, the reason that I, I point that out is that often uh, when The metaphors are used. They sacrifice detail. And detail is very, very important as it relates to codification. So just hoping that people will think about that. Be mindful. Uh, I'll put that out before we have about 40 minutes before the conclusion of the broadcast. Uh, If anybody can think of a film that's came out in the last 25 years, last 25 years, that had a predominantly black cast and you think it's constructive because i can't think of one like i think that it's going to end up being a code like i mean that's for me it's already a code like i generally avoid uh films that have a lot of black people in them like the butler i never saw that Uh, i sat through about half of precious that was before i had a code uh on these matters Uh, i still haven't seen uh the film with uh, Nate Parker, uh, birth, the birth of it, I still haven't seen that. Uh, I wish I hadn't seen Fences with Denzel Washington. Man, that was an excruciating uh, experience. Like, yeah, that's that's my general code. Like, I avoid uh, films that have, I expect it to be empire under the system of white supremacy. Other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed.
22: Can I be heard?
20: Greetings, Emmy. I saw myself in the mirror again today and I said I do look fit.
22: <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> Good for you. I'm happy about that. Actually I guess I will make that the first thing I wanted to talk about. Um I think I'm I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how to solve our problem of the system of racism and white supremacy. And I'm oftentimes overwhelmed by my research, which indicates that the um, genetic trauma is very real, very quantifiable, and um, epigenetic. And so I spend a lot of time actually trying to learn more about that. And so then I get more and more sad because I think about how many hundreds of years and all of that stress passed on from one generation and one generation and one generation and so forth. And so then um, I actually happened to accidentally stumble upon some research, which I think is absolutely fascinating because I was learning about um, organelles in the cell and the mitochondria being a endosymbiont of like an earlier, like it being a, a bacteria endosymbiont of an earlier eukaryotic cell. And so it functions because it's an endosymbiont. It functions differently and independently than the other um, organelles in the cell. What's in it, what it does is through the process of fission and or fusion, it can create more of itself without the whole cell having to divide. And people who work out actually have more mitochondria in their cells than people who don't. And so I was just really fascinated about uh, by that. So then I looked it up some more. It, and the mitochondria is the organelle that produces the ATP, which is the like chemical version of energy for the body. It's a very high energy molecule. So so many of the body's um, processes are run by ATP. So the more mitochondria you have, the more ATP you have, and the more ATP you have the less energy you have to acquire from um, like food sources and things like that. And the more energy you can just generate on your own. And the more energy you have, the more processes you can do, including brain function. In addition though, so there was a study that came out that indicated that although black people age on the outside very well, on a cellular level, we are aging much faster than our white counterparts. And I was devastated um, by that. So I looked into it stumbled upon mm-hmm. accident research. What that indicates when you work out and you produce all this mitochondria, the scientists aren't really sure exactly how it happens, but it actually can reverse the cellular aging. And the cellular aging is really scary. And it's essentially when on the ends of your genetic material, there are these regions of just genetic material that doesn't necessarily code for anything important, but it's like a buffer region. Those areas get shorter, and then each generation, as they get shorter, it's, our DNA can be more compromised. The larger implications of that is that, like, you know, in a couple of generations, if our telomeres are so short in the Black population, you know, overall, that we would have less genetic material to pass on, and all of our great benefits would be lost. So the point is, exercise, moving is extremely important. Not only does it combat um, depression, uh, but it literally can reverse some of the epigenetic traumas that we have suffered under the system of racism, white supremacy. So I was really excited to find that. And that was what I wanted to share with the female caller who spoke. Um, I think like, and exercise, whatever form is good for you, just figure it out and do it. If it's yoga, great. If it's the gym, great. If it's running, biking, whatever. If you don't have access to any of that, there's tons of YouTube videos on how to work out at home. Um, Chili from TLC makes like, she has a bunch of information. Like if you Google her, she talks about it all the time on how to work out, even if you're at home. Um, But to just make sure that you're doing that because it really, really can um, have a really positive effect And I think the second thing, like, because you mentioned it, and I've actually been thinking about it, I actually did cut off uh, my Instagram, it was so hard. It it was really, really difficult, but I did it, it's all gone, deleted. Um, But I think social media, there's a lot of research that suggests that social media actually causes people to be more depressed too. So I know, you know, there's a desire to be connected, but sometimes it comes at a price of your mental health. Which is unhealthy because um, sometimes you really can't control what videos people post and what you see and all that other stuff. And then also the you know the whole competition dynamic and the you know fake posting of people's lives and you compare yourself and all that stuff. All that just creates um, an unhealthy psychological environment. And you know you can create more time by not having social media and actually be happier. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, and for so the workplace commentary. I would say just leave the group. But this is me personally. Like, I'm not a fan of groups at all. I um, don't like working with people, and I don't like working in groups, and I don't like being in groups for that very same reason that she mentioned in her email. The dynamics, people, all of that is, you know, exhausting. And so if there's a way to leave the group, like, silently or quietly, calmly, you know, just excuse yourself from the group leave it alone that way you don't have to be a part of any of that um and then i agree with all the other callers that said anything about observing i'm a huge fan of that or or, you know i'm a big proponent of that i think just being the weird quiet person who just is always listening is smarter than being the loud person always talking Um, and Oh, and then you mentioned in her email she mentioned about like meeting someone off site and writing something to be read and all of that and it just seemed really messy. Not I'm not trying to be disrespectful, it just it didn't seem constructive. Um, and I was I would really reconsider if there's another way that you could go about getting whatever it is that you need, your needs met without doing all of that. I could see that causing way more problems for you. Down the future. And then the last thing I wanted to say, just because, you know, like the female black caller who said she has difficulty with, you know, dealing with the pressures and stress of being black and racism, white supremacy, the clip about the missionaries brought me to tears because I know that all the time. And anytime there's anything anywhere and white people go there, that's what they do all the time to the children and to everybody. And that makes me feel very weak and hopeless and helpless sometimes. Um, Because I can only imagine what it's like to be like, I need water and someone wants you to perform some sexual act on them. And that's it. Thank you for listening.
20: Appreciate that, Emmy. I appreciate that they pointed out the power imbalance that makes these, uh, acts of sexual exploitation so incorrect because we point out that same power imbalance on this here broadcast all the time in talking about area eight but the thing that i thought about was one of our former guests uh amy walence we had her on the program some years back she wrote a book about haiti she's been to haiti many times white woman ambulances going by um but when she was on the program i asked her if she had sexual intercourse with any non-white people while she was in Haiti and you know she laughed about this said, what are you talking about I'm married that was the re- and I talked about this on the program but I mean serious I wish that this event had been public at that time because it was this is what this is tied to uh this is not just someone trying to be goofy or what have you on the sex thing this is what Richard Bernstein, one of the very first guests we had on the program, uh, the West, the East, the West and sex. The chapter in his book, what is it titled infamously? The whole world is the white man's brothel. Brothel. That's what they do worldwide. White man and white woman. That's what they do worldwide. They make movies about that. In fact, they got a a movie where white women go to, to Haiti and sexually export underage black males. That's what they do worldwide. That's one of the principal aspects uh, of racism, white supremacy. So it's not surprise. It's not shock. This is standard operating procedure. Jerry Sandusky is global. Do we have other folks that we missed uh, completely?
27: Can I be heard?
20: Greetings, retired firefighter.
27: Greetings, everyone. Uh, just to uh speak briefly on the uh the latest uh shooting incident that uh has been popularized lately uh that particular high school and area uh i probably can reach it in about 30 minutes from where i stay at uh uh because i stay on the uh edges of Miami-Dade County uh literally only about uh three to five minutes from the county line into Broward County where where that uh high school is located at. Uh, the uh just to give uh the listeners uh a brief understanding of the of the environment is one of those uh I would say modern day uh methods that uh uh white people put together uh for uh in a codified way the environment itself uh they would uh have of course themselves as the majority and uh they would have a uh a percentage of non white people uh in the area uh there are there is a percentage of white people in that area uh, with their children that goes to that school that call themselves Jews uh, that goes to that school uh, and uh basically when you create that type of formula then you're gonna have then they're gonna have to their uh liking on who goes to schools with their uh, with their children uh, and uh uh but uh but as what happens with uh, white people with their uh, psychotic behavior uh you're going to have uh a few that uh, that is not going to be able to be controlled and that's what uh uh they ran into Oh, oh sorry about that uh metaphor that they uh, encountered uh, uh with uh mr uh uh cruz uh I wonder if he's related to, uh, the, uh, Senator in the state of Texas. Uh, that'd be interesting. Uh, one thing I noticed about him that they haven't, uh, popularized, they meaning the, uh, white controlled, uh, media, uh, that they haven't popularized that he, uh, has several photographs of him wearing, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Trump's, uh, uh, what's that? But what you want to call it a logo? make America great again. Uh, he, he's, he's several photographs that I've seen. Uh, uh, the idea that he, uh, was a member of a quote unquote white nationalist organization, racist, white supremacy is, uh, is, uh, a, uh, a program in itself, uh, not understanding what nationalism is, uh, uh, myself. Um, uh, uh basically uh that was my observations uh this week uh as far as with that uh, particular uh incident uh something else something else that I had in mind just um, uh, slips my mind now uh, but uh that's basically uh was my observations for for uh this week uh for the most part. thank you.
20: Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, Do we have any other folks that we've not heard from at all? Any callers that we missed completely? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am.
26: Hello to the callers and guests. This is Ari from the Seattle area. So I wish I would have got to call in last week, the day that the workshop was. Um, I just had a couple of quick questions and comments to make. Um, I wanted to comment on the White Ally Toolkit workshop that we were both in attendance at last week and ask if you were able to find out if he had a white partner, um, the black male presenter who kind of um, put the whole thing on. I always just presented it. Um, also, I wanted to put on record, and I'm sure you remember the suspected racist that came up while we were in the analyst group who offered to pay for our admissions for getting in. Well, I gave her my Venmo email, whatever. She never did. Um, even though I, I was writing my email down, I'm like, I don't even expect this. Um me her even her whole approach was tacky well the whole workshop was just coming up no combo just here to write your email i'm still learning though i reflect and should have asked you some questions the other suspect is racist so elaine who you might remember the one that told us she lived in seattle since the early 2000s and has not seen any racism or um yeah all that um, when she first came up i was like all right this is like my first time being not being an attempted counter-racist at an actual workshop. I mean, I've been to other things where they talk about it, but actually, you know, workshops are more interactive. Um, so I was like, okay, what person's coming up to me and sitting down? Um, so I merely thought just questions. And so I asked her if I could do her dialogue activity we were supposed to be working on. Well, I already told you I wasn't going to work on it because I couldn't relate um, to the to anything, but especially that. And she didn't even have her paper with her. She wasn't even doing the activity. I don't know what she was just wandering around um, doing. And so then I asked her, I, what has she learned from this workshop? Buckets of words, nothing to even repeat. Then I asked her, what does she do when she sees racism or non-white people being mistreated because of it? Um, and that's when she said she never experienced racism in Washington or California, the area she's lived in. Um, and that's just um, some quick commentaries about that. I just really happy overall. Um, and another thing that I overheard as I was walking out, um, you, I guess like a group of white people were, there was like an after event planned, like at the Hilltop Ale House. So these white people were going out to drink after this workshop, but they're supposed to be talking about racism, I guess, um. I was just like, wow. Um, so I'm very thankful for the cows. I believe it has ex- exponentially helped increase my understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, and how it works, especially when I reflect on my confusion even several years ago. Um, like earlier this week, when Warren thing was on, um, you guys talked about how everyone has a cosmic duty. And I think the more I become codified and think I understand racism, I believe I'm getting closer to finding out what that is, um I can just bounce off what I just said, um you know just solving problems, thinking logically, um, especially about racism white like, supremacy um, also one last thing I just wanted to ask, have you heard about the death and um, alleged drug overdose of delvin Heckard, one of the black male accusers of um, the former uh, mayor of Seattle um yeah, it just happened yesterday and um it was just interesting i was watching the news and it was like um saying there was this fire at the auburn motel and i didn't think anything of it it's just the news move on and then um at the same motel that the fire happened um there was a report that um yeah there was just delvin heckard uh one of the accusers Side of a drug overdose. So I know it's new and it's just coming out, um, but I just wanted to know your comments on it, if any, right now. Um, thanks for listening, everyone.
20: Uh, greetings. Good to hear from you. We were both at the White Ally Toolkit uh, last week. I posted the audio. Uh, it's in the iTunes feed. It's on SoundCloud, Black Talk Radio Network. You can you know check it out, download but uh, man, I went to specifically to ask him that question. Uh, Dr. David Camp is the black male who facilitated the workshop last week. I uh, went to speak to him after it was over uh, specifically to ask him that question. And it seems uh, it wasn't exactly. Friend- Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. <laughs> he had a lot of similarities to Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. Uh, who admitted on the program that he wanted to Uh, punch me in the face uh, when we first met like it was not you know kumbaya at all (laughs) forgive the metaphor Uh, so I did not ask him because it just seemed like there was discomfort I asked him if he was married and yeah it just was not it was not pleasant comfortable conversation so I did not uh, asked, did not get that bit of information, which I really, really wanted uh, to know. If I wish I had one other uh, person with me, I would have just got them to ask because he seemed like he was already not pleased with my commentary during the seminar. Uh, let's see. I did read about the, Ed Murray is the former white mayor of Seattle. I did read that one of his accusers died I di- I read it in the paper. I didn't see it uh, on television, and they didn't have a photograph in the Seattle Times. Uh, when I read it, I was wondering because I remember that a lot of his accusers were non-white, and in my opinion, many of them were black. Uh, and it, he didn't he didn't have to step down as mayor until a white person stepped forward. I believe uh, his cousin or something. It's you know been six seven months, uh, but it was a white person stepped forward and said, "Oh yeah, he you know." was sexually inappropriate with me too. And then he had to step down. But when it was all non-white people, it was just, you know, that's just innuendo and rumors. And that is the mayor of Seattle until, you know, whatever. Uh, But I did read that. I did not know it was definitively that this was a non-white person that this happened to. Certainly suspicious would not surprise me at all. If something untoward happened to him. In fact, that was uh, the theory that Chet Detlinger and Cisco street love, the late Cisco street love, uh, put forward about what was happening with the Atlanta child murders, that that was uh, black, non-white people, black children, black, younger people being killed to cover up sexual uh, impropriety, sexual uh, misconduct to quiet all that down. Speculation. Um, yeah, and I will. Oh, and I I think I spoke to the same White woman that she mentioned, a suspected race soldier who was saying that she had not observed racism. And I think I think that might even be in the audio where I was telling her that I thought uh, that that was uh, an act of racism, that I did not believe that at all uh, for any white person, particularly a white woman. She looked like she was like 50, uh, maybe even older than that, to tell me that you've never seen an act of racism. You can't even tell me a time where you yourself practice. Come on. Come on. Uh, Other folks that we've uh, not heard from at all have commentary.
28: Oh uh, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh yes, sir. Uh greetings to us, the hosts, the listeners and callers. Uh like I, I know it was a, a couple of people mentioning about having a definition for like a term that you're using and like while the audio segments was playing. I was thinking about, like, during this week with the uh, the shootings down here, uh, the uh, school shooting down here in Florida, like that term uh, mental illness or mental health kept being used, and, like, nobody, I don't know if anybody on the line was looking for, like, somebody to define it. Um, nobody else, uh, you know, presented a definition of nobody, none of the guests like ask for a definition and if you also notice like nobody you know nobody never said like like not only what is it but when is it when is it occurring how do how do you know when it's happening and you know who does it apply to who it doesn't apply to things like that and also that that slogan um guns don't kill people people kill people like i don't know where that came from that that phrase like i was noticing that like people had it on little signs on tv and uh like i heard some people say that as well and there was a segment i seen on the news where it was an officer i guess the officer that arrested the uh the uh, the shooter he was saying uh that he almost thought that, hey, this, you know, this can't be the guy that did it. Like, he looks like the, the typical high school kid. And, uh, you know, you, you have to see that as is, is racism. You know, I don't know if anybody else did, but I'm thinking, you know, if you're less confused, you have to see that kind of speech is a uh, supporter racism because he, he's saying, like, you know, you, this, this kid can be the one who did it. It's got to be somebody black or something like that. Uh, you know, so that he, he knew to wear certain types of clothes and uh, pull a fire alarm, things like that. You know, he, he's using logic even to uh, do evil things to harm people. And racism is also there when you have people saying, and this white people saying, well, you know, this, this guy was re- reported he was reported numerous times to the sheriffs and the FBI and everybody just standing here looking at each other. Like, why, you know, how could this, how could we have let this happen? And like, they're trying to fake the ignorance like they not think it was because he was a white person. And that term, um, black identity extremist was being used. Like we're supposed to be the ones being examined and focused on, but he was able to be, Um, unnoticed and whatnot. Uh, And one one last thing I wanted to mention was, like it seems like when racism comes up, like on a lot of articles and videos that I see, like I'm noticing that there's, usually it's the same setup where you have about maybe 25, 35 non-white people, you know, holding up signs usually say black lives matter or you know something of that nature and there's a lot of chance. Um I'm trying to think of a of a term for this. And you have these like a mass group of non white people going in one direction, you know, uh, harmonizing, almost harmonizing some kind of chant or slogan like, you know, no justice, this and that and and it seemed to uh repeat itself whether it's here or it's in Washington or New York, it's the same type of pattern. Like, I don't know if anyone else noticed this, but um, like Gus, would you happen to think like this could be uh, influenced by uh, racists? Or like, like have you observed that?
20: Where it'll be a group of black people with the sign, just making sure I get that part of it uh, correct. It's the same, it's organized in the same type of manner. Uh, regardless of where it's happening at, what part of the world geographically?
28: Yes, sir. May, mainly over here uh, in, in this area uh, that uh, that they call uh, America. It, it seems like when uh, a racial incident or racism occurs, that, like there's the response that'll have that'll happen. It'll have like a, a group of black people, and they'll have like a megaphone or some kind of microphone or something and they'll be on the streets usually and it'll be like a group of people like in a line and they'll be marching mm-hmm. and it seems like it's that same type of dynamic and they're chanting these same things like they don't even come up with anything else or you know no racist police or no justice no peace like harmonizing like rhyming stuff together you know real simple slogans you know that's i guess stuff that's catchy and people ain't really using their own minds. Uh this just seems like it's something that one person can influence like hundreds of people to do.
20: I I would uh I think if the question do I think racists uh directly or indirectly are they responsible for that, uh absolutely now it could be as direct as, you know, uh a white person telling uh one or a group of non white people to go and, you know, See if you can get some flyers and get some shirts printed up and, you know, whatever, and go out. This is the route. Uh, Or it could be as indirect as I think for a lot of non-white people. uh, Our range of responses to white supremacy are generally not very uh, creative. There's generally not a lot of imagination with regards to how do we go about solving this problem? So you end up with a lot of the same responses. Uh, we're gonna march. We're gonna have a protest. Uh, we might even use the same song that they sung fifty years ago, because they do that sometimes, uh, and sing "We Shall Overcome" or you know whatever they were singing seventy years ago. Uh, it's it's a real limited range of responses that are shown. Uh, Also, even referencing what the earlier caller said, you don't get some responses like Lavelle Mixon. You know, those responses are taken off the board and some of the others. So you just get a very narrow range of what is acceptable uh, with regards to how you're supposed to react to these situations. So directly, indirectly. uh, Absolutely. I think it's not a coincidence. And generally, you you already know the result of what's going to happen to those sort of uh, outings, events.
28: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, that's that's all I had to add. add. For sure.
20: Yes, sir. Mr. Steele, I just wanted to say really quick. I I also saw uh, the caller in Florida, the report where the officer said, oh, this couldn't be the shooting when he nabbed uh, Mr. Cruz, uh, white identity extremist. Uh, I too read that and I agree completely. Uh, That is not the way that race soldiers, enforcement officials think. When it's, oh, we got a call for Tamir Rice, uh, a child, it's not, oh, no, this this child couldn't be a, a shooter or a savage or uh, Miriam Carey, who was unarmed. It's That is not the way that they proceed uh, in dealing with non-white people at all. And this was another uh, shooter killer who was taken into custody unarmed. Not like Walter Scott and so many others. And I also uh, wanted to add. I do think it's also significant, unlike Dylan Roof, uh, when that white terrorist went out and shot up uh, the church in South Carolina uh, and racists made sure to loop the footage of the victims saying, oh, we forgive you and all that. That's not what happened this time around. You have legions of angry white people uh, who have lists of people that they want fired uh, and terminated at the FBI. And you failed uh, to get this guy. And You had advanced notice. I have not heard any talk of forgiveness and we'll pray about this. Uh, They are angry. Uh, The students, the young people, everybody, they are just angry. Totally different uh, response. Same thing. Totally different range of responses when black people are mistreated as opposed to what happens when white people are mistreated or feel victimized in some way. Thank you for your patience, Mr. Steele.
23: Yeah, not a problem. Um, Yeah, this is Ken Steele. And I just wanted to, uh, uh, you know, point out that uh, online, you can observe several videos. You can observe several videos of black women being treated with, I guess, more uh, vigor and with more energy, um, uh, to towards them, um, for not paying their their nail bill, um, that was shown for this uh, this uh, I guess white identity extremists, this uh, suspected white supremacist, or I guess this I, I don't know, uh, you know, this alleged. Uh, terrorist over here, you know. He was just taken down. There was barely a scratch on his chin. I think that was the only mark that I, I observed on on his person in any of the mug shots or any of the um, any of the the footage uh, taken from the courtroom. So, yeah, he was being treated um, um very delicately and um, very um, uh, in a very low energy manner when compared to um, uh, minor offenders uh, that we've seen are uh, that are classified as black and especially black females. I mean, I just see this video after video surfacing of um, uh, victims of racism, female victims of racism um, being viciously beaten uh, for, uh, you know, for shorting, you know, the uh the nail tech nine ninety five for the manny or the petty. And I, I'm just uh I'm 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 really uh I'm not surprised at this, but the um the blatant uh I guess asymmetry in behavior or I guess the blatant um I guess disregard for any sort of uh norms when dealing with uh you know people who are are blowing up fellow white people, even. I think that that should be taken as a sign by um, uh, victims out here that uh, these white supremacists are not, uh, they are are very serious about practicing white supremacy, and I believe that they are getting ready to to make even more um, extreme moves. I think this weekend, it's very troubling to me that even in the face of, uh, of, uh, danger, I mean, just examples of extreme racist violence, um, even in the face of this, um, we were, uh, we, uh, a lot of us victims of racism were ready to, you know, um, put those fears aside or, you know, put down our suspicion for these, um, you know, massive gatherings and, um, I guess, you know, the the evening took precedent over safety. And um, I think we're just demonstrating to the suspected white supremacists um, that uh, we may not be uh, as serious as we ought to be when dealing with them in the face of, you know, just extreme danger. So I think that um, it's, uh, it's, it's very peculiar um, to see, you know, kind of the, the, the contrast in behavior, the um, suspected white supremacists, they were all on code, all denying that, you know, to, to be able to see that the, that racism had any part to play in facilitating this, uh, this killer's uh, ability to, to kill so many of them. They're completely denying that. They're completely uh, deflecting their, and it seems like they're all on code as they're engaging in this behavior as well. And then, you know, contrasting that with the behavior of, you know, the victims of racism, just um, I, I, in contrast, we weren't serious at all in the way that we reacted to all of these events and, uh, and our own safety. So I just, I think that there's just a lot of mistakes being made. And then also with regard to, you know, the black Panther movie, I don't think a lot of people are talking about this, but it seems like, you know, that they spent $900 million to make a very sophisticated psychological study for black people. I think that the, you know, the, the movie has black people fighting black people to um, eventually, you know, I guess, protect uh, other white people from being harmed by black people. So, you know, that was one of the cases, and I think that they had a, a whole Malcolm Martin motif there is style motif going on with the film with the two main characters. And it was just uh you know, black on black violence. And then in the, I guess uh, in the background was the, you know, the question, do we take out all of the, all of the suspected racists? Do we take them all out or do we deal with them? And do we try to make peace? And I think the point of the movie is that the good guy, um, you know, opts to make peace and, um, and the, um, the villain, I guess, is the person who, who wants to destroy all of the races. So it's kind of like Zootopia in that effect. So very sophisticated psychological operation, um, by the people, by the racists that were responsible for creating it. Um, very, very, um, um, very disheartening to see how effective, um, their, their money was spent, uh, was spent and, um. And it's very, you know, uh discouraging to see so many of us um uh falling prey to um uh, this uh this white supremacist trickery. And I'll go ahead and mute my line at this time. Thank you.
20: Indeed. That's a lot of money they could have invested in producing justice. Uh, I will only say quickly the denial of racism, white supremacy, because I think we did have a caller who asked that question earlier with regards to the Florida shooting and Mr. Cruz uh, and saying uh, that uh, white people are perhaps even victims themselves, uh, because it might have been that some individuals classified as white were uh, shot in this event, uh, that their denial, their refusal to identify uh, the shooter uh, as a white supremacist and the role of white supremacy in the shooting. uh, In my view, uh, that is not white people are are victims of their own crime. They are sticking to the code, uh, as Mr. Steele stated. That is one of the primary, primary obligations of racist man, racist woman, racist child, especially at this particular point in time uh, in how the system operates the denial of racism white supremacy you are in particularly uh using that sort of flagrant terminology i think retired firefighters said that before so that is standard uh the and when we went to the white ally toolkit last week nobody used the term white supremacy they got really really sophisticated in finding ways of avoiding identifying whites even as racist i think they were saying racism skeptics was the term that was being used last week, not even racist. So, that is a huge, huge yep. way that racism is practiced not using correct terms to identify this problem. Uh, we are almost and, at the... Hang, hang on one second, because uh, we're almost at the end of the program. I want to see, is there anybody we missed uh-huh. completely? Anybody who had a hand up that didn't get opportunity to speak at all? Oh, the, the caller... Can I just say one rose? more thing? The caller, uh, 7433, 7433. Did you have uh, comments you wanted to get in?
14: Yeah, have you heard? Yes, sir. Hi. I'm a long time listener, uh, first time calling in. Um, I just want to say that uh, it is a pleasure to, uh, I guess, just have a forum um, where, you know, to hear other black people talk about (coughs) just. This good constructive information. I just want to thank you for the program, and I only have one statement. It's just that uh, it just seems like, as blatant racism is in uh, twenty eighteen, part me I'm a little nervous. It just seems like we just, just, just a moving a little bit further back, look further and further, even though their racism is just so blatant,
11: and it's just, it's just
14: very disheartening. It's just, it's just very nerve wracking. And I believe um, a while ago, I think I heard Ms. Wellsing, uh, I'm not sure, but say that black people suffer from, uh, it seems like a mental disease, like like the system that caused us to have like a mental disease to, I guess, kind of always want to seek white validation. And at this point, it's just, it's just very sad to see so many black people just I guess always look for that validation. But that's all
20: I have to say. The system works very effectively. I think just understanding uh, that all of us uh, have been uh, traumatized and, and conditioned to function as victims of white supremacy, understanding that and just working against that, recognizing that conditioning even in ourselves uh, as we work to be patient with others and understanding how all of this ha- and happened over a number of of centuries, not just one day or a few weeks as Emmy was talking about the epigenetic aspect of all of this, but just that is the system of white supremacy where you can terrorize and traumatize people for generations to produce that sort of uh, behavior that if I can, uh, if this white person accepts me, then maybe maybe I I won't be subjected to the same sort of brutality. There is, you know, some understanding as to why that's happening that I think could help us be a little less frustrated uh, with that dynamic. Uh, Mr. Steele, can you get your final comment in in about 30 seconds?
23: Yeah, just real quick. You know, it was um, very interesting following the shooting that um, almost immediately that the people who fit the profile of the shooter, um, I'm talking about these MAGA hat-wearing, um, you know, violent, uh, gun-toting white supremacists. You know, a lot of them were on the Internet immediately after the incident went down. They immediately blamed the victims of the shooting for not, you know, being so uh, proactive and warning, um, you know, alerting people to this. And then when they learned that, you know, that they were proactive in alerting people to this, then they started blaming the, the, you know, the FBI and everything. And, you know, they, it seemed like they were all working together to throw the blame off of themselves. And, um, and this was the, you know, the same case with the Trump administration themselves. I believe that he was documented for writing them and getting a response from Donald Trump. So, um, you know, it's going to be interesting when that letter surfaces, but yeah, they wanted to place the blame on everybody else, but the white supremacists seconds who admitted that they were working that they that they were working with this guy. So um I just wanted to bring that up. Thank you so much.
27: For
20: sure. Appreciate that, Mr. Steele. Uh that will conclude the broadcast. I hope we did not uh miss anyone. I think I got all the folks who had uh hands up Uh, We will be back. We should be here on Wednesday. That will be uh, the exact date of our nine-year anniversary uh, normal broadcast time. You can tune in Black Talk Radio Network. Facebook page will have all the information uh, updated and ready to go. Uh, If you have questions, problems, guest suggestions, uh, issues with uh, accessing broadcasts in the archives, drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com justice at gmail.com uh, i'm still going through the backlog i have made significant progress but i'm still catching up mm-hmm. on uh emails from the period where we were down because of the flood uh thank you all for being patient uh under extremely unpleasant circumstances everything but the yoga uh extremely unpleasant circumstances uh that's it uh hope Folks have a constructive uh, weekend, constructive beginning to the week. Uh, Remain codified. Uh, It is serious. Racism, white supremacy is war against non-white people. Uh, I think it behooves us all to be uh, alert. White people. Oh, that is what I'll make sure I get in as we wrap things up. Everything about the birthday party that I mentioned previously, everything about the whole day uh, was terrible. Like from the beginning all the way to the end. The day started before the birthday party we went to costco one of those mega uh like uh wholesale outlets type deal uh, so we go to costco to get uh supplies for the birthday party it's sunday like sunday i think like noonish or maybe a little after uh, noon when we go. So, I mean, this is like peak time. Uh, Folks are getting out of church and going to do all their shopping for the weekend, what have you. So, it's super crowded. No parking places. Uh, I generally hate, loathe uh, going even to the grocery store on Sunday at this time because it's the same thing, but it's especially bad at uh, Costco. It's almost a riot. So, we get there and we're riding in the parking lot uh, trying to find a space and there's this white guy and he's just yelling. He's maybe... We'll say 25 yards, 25 meters from where we are in the vehicle and we have our windows down in the vehicle. He has uh, he has his windows down so we can hear him and he's just yelling and cursing. This is ridiculous. It's logic. It's logic. Maybe he's a Mr. Fuller fan. It's logic. You have parking places. What is wrong with you? It's logic. And he's just yelling and screaming. People are looking like, what is going on? What is going on? And I didn't even want to go at the store uh, at this point because I was like, wow, like this guy could be unstable. He could be on drugs, all of the above. Uh, white people brag about being armed. This is kind of gun country out here in this territory as well. Uh, he could pull out a gun and you know shoot up the whole parking lot. Could have been you know uh, the Nicholas Cruz situation up here and they've had numerous shootings up here anyway. Uh, I didn't even want to go in the store uh, after this happened because it just kept going. This wasn't like uh, 30 seconds of you know him cursing or what have you, and then it I mean this just went on and on and on. And one of the folks that we were in the vehicle, like yelled something at the guy. And I was like, whoa, 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 what is going on? White people are dangerous. You don't know if he has a gun like what? I don't even want to go in the store. And you're like yelling. at I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like just white people are extremely dangerous. Like I think that was mentioned by one of our callers in terms of not being serious. Take that very seriously. Uh, It's not saying that you got to be fearful and trembling, uh, but you want to be very logical, very intelligent and honest about the fact that these folks revel uh, in violence. That's their whole history. Uh, And just being, you know, correct about that. Like I do not want to be in the middle of a barrage. Things look like they might be unsafe here. I'm going to take appropriate measures. I think that is extremely important. Just something I wanted to emphasize because that did happen within the last uh, seven days right here in glorious Seattle. Uh, With that, thanks for the folks tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. We'll be back soon. Certainly with Jimi Hendrix, they said both of his parents suffered from alcoholism. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy, and we talked about Mister. Hendrix's demise uh, with John Patash, uh, where he said, "Hey, that that too, uh, racist man, racist woman, racist child, uh, using drugs as a weapon uh, against Mister. Hendrix." Uh, but sobriety would be best. Uh, I think one of the best things we can do preserve our brain computers, uh, make it so that we can have as much time uh, as possible thinking clearly uh, so that we can produce produce new creative solutions, imaginative concepts to how we can go about solving this problem permanently with the system of white supremacy. Uh, I think Dr. Welsing certainly would co-sign Dr. Kanban as well. Uh, let's leave all of white's narcotics and poisons on the roadside uh, and go about the business of our cosmic duty producing justice. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other Black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice
14: immediately.
20: Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
14: Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here
4: today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
16: Sorry, sorry, we're here.
0: We
3: were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps)